This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. Connections abound in the paranoiac and conspiracy-laden world of Thomas Pynchon. Connections vast and connections minute. Connections real and perceived and imagined and hoped for and dreaded and undiscovered. The same could be said of the city, the megalopolis Los Angeles, with its never-ending cascade of connections falling upon its concrete sprawl and tangling up its dazed denizens like fish in a net of a certain schooner sailing the seven seas. Connections that bind this person to that movie, or that movie to that song, or that song to that memory, or that missing person to that booby hatch, or that ex-olds to that supposedly dead junkie sax player, and so on, and so on, and so on. World without end, hallelujah. And if connections are part of the marrow deep makeup of Pynchon's work, and maybe even a little movie based on one of those books, then boy oh boy, today's guest was pretty much born to talk about them, as he and our host surf upon a series of seemingly endless wave of connections, from SoCal Noirs to comic book paper art, to the hidden extraterrestrial messages buried within PTA's punch-drunk love. No, really. Paul Thomas Anderson is, for me, the best and most important director of his generation, the only person I know of who not only invites, but actually earns, comparison with Martin Scorsese. Like Scorsese, Anderson is a voracious film scholar whose movies both honor traditions and shatter them. Also like Scorsese, he's a committed chronicler of 20th century American history whose perspective is consistently deeper, broader, and more original than just about anyone else's. He's also the best director of actors since Elia Kazan. I defy you to find any working director, anywhere, who has shepherded more extraordinary performances to the screen. And one of the most innovative filmmakers on the planet when it comes to both source music and score. There's no pleasure the movies can give us with which he is not familiar, and which he has not provided at one time or another. He veers from art house experimentation to old-fashioned melodrama, and from profound philosophical inquiry to kinetic violence and dirty sex. Plenty of other directors make great movies, but no one makes movies that have more of what makes movies great in them. Inherent Vice is a case in point. With its portrait of people across the economic and political spectrum desperately chasing ideals that are already slipping through their fingers, Inherent Vice serves as a worthy companion piece to Boogie Nights, Anderson's earlier masterpiece about lovely, foolish dreamers in an epoch of transition. No one in the history of cinema has ever handled ensembles better than Anderson, and it's thrilling to see him painting on a sprawling Boogie Nights slash Magnolia-esque canvas again. Inherent Vice can also be appreciated as the third film in a trilogy that began with There Will Be Blood and The Master, films wrestling with questions of American identity and politics and the intersection between grand forces of history and intimate human foibles and idiosyncrasies. It's a film that sums up and contains everything that makes Anderson great, yet it's also something completely new. I've never seen this precise blend of tones and styles in any other Anderson movie. I've never seen this blend of tones and styles in any other movie, period. And that 
is today's guest on the funky, faded postcard majesty of Inherent Vice, written with the typically encyclopedic, hyper-passionate force that he brings to bear in all of his work. From directing his own films like The Trouble with the Truth and Bad Reputation, to serving as a film historian with essays published in the Chicago Reader and Film Comment, to his expansive film commentaries for films like Inherit the Wind and Hang Him High, to hosting the podcast for American Cinematographer. And, if you're lucky enough to be a film fan living in Los Angeles, you've likely caught one of his amazing and illuminating Q&As at the Egyptian, the Arrow, the New Beverly, and so many other places with the likes of Martin Scorsese, Charlize Theron, Nicolas Cage, David Mamet, Paul Schrader, and a certain writer-director named Paul Thomas Anderson. Jim Hempel, thanks for coming on Increment Vice. Thanks for having me on. That's a, a great intro, and it's it's interesting. While you were reading that, I forgot that I'd written it, and I was listening to it. I was thinking, yeah, well, yeah, I agree with that. I agree with yeah, that. And then I realized, good. I realized, oh, that was that was mine. Although, uh, yeah, you probably should have added in the description hyperbolic. Uh, I think the the only thing I would change about that now is, uh, you know, I, I this is the problem with writing things down for public consumption is that I tend to. Uh, when I get passionate about movie, every movie is the greatest movie ever made, and every director is the greatest director who has ever lived. And probably if someone was going to do a little bit of detective work, they would find uh, that I said some other director was the greatest director of actors well, ever or something. But, but I would stand love, by most of it. We love hyperbole on Increment Vice. <laughs> and if you're going to be hyperbolic about Inherent Vice and PTA, this would be the show to do it. So we're going to pretend like you didn't say that, <laughs> and we're going to go with that. This is this is as good as it gets for PTA. This is, and we're going to yeah, we're going to stick with that. No hyperbole there. Don't listen to Jim. He doesn't know what he's saying. He's confused. <laughs> well, like, yeah, okay. I'll, 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 we'll, we'll, let, we'll let it go there. I have to. I have to stand by my writing. This is why I don't like writing. I mean, this is the funny thing is I actually. Uh, I really, of all those things you mentioned that I do, the thing that's my least favorite is writing. I really don't like, I don't enjoy it. Like I, I find, hate it. Yeah. I hate it. I, it's I, the most gut-wrenching thing in the world. Yeah, to do. I find it to be very tedious, very gut-wrenching. And then once it's out there, uh, the fact that, like I say, I tend to just sort of spill my guts onto the page and mm -hmm. then, uh, you know, invariably. I mean, look, I, I, I had regrets a few weeks ago. This website, TalkHouse, pulled a bunch of filmmakers on their favorite movies of the year, and I turned in my poll and immediately two days later regretted half of the choices. You did the high-fidelity thing I, where you I, had to uh, rewrite I, everything. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there were things that I had put on that I wished weren't and things I left off that weren't, and it's uh, – so, yeah, but um, – Well, a couple of nerds we are, huh? <laughs> right? But no, I get it. Uh, writing is the most uh, – it's the most disgusting, arduous – debilitating, self-loathing yeah. thing in my life is yeah. uh, typing words. I, I hate it. I yeah. absolutely hate doing it. I would yeah. happily, I'd happily have a root canal. Yeah, than, it's than a very, write. very neurotic endeavor. Yeah. But then people tell me to do it, so I do it, and, <laughs> and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm miserable. <laughs> but without turning this, I don't want to turn this into a therapist session. Not yet, anyway. Not yet. Yeah. We'll do that closer to the end of the episode. Um, one thing that I think you do enjoy doing is your Q and A's, yeah. and you've really become in town one of the go-to the guy. And we were at uh, the New Beverly a couple of Fridays ago for a screening of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and you were there to do the Q and A with Michael Madsen after, who appears in that film and a host of other Tarantino films. And Jules McLean, the director of operations of the New Beverly, she introduced you by saying that. Going to one of your Q&As is essentially, it's like going to film school. And I totally agree. 
So I just wanted to say thank you, and it's an honor to have you on the show talking about this movie with me because you you are. You're the best. You're, you're so great at this, and you're so great about getting to the heart of these movies that we obsess about and these performances that we obsess about and finding kind of finding why they're special to us. And yeah, I'm well, happy thanks. to have you. I, I appreciate that. I mean, I mean, those Q and A's are like film school for me too. I mean, that's the great. And I feel like I've sort of stumbled into the greatest job I've ever had doing those Q and A's. And it's it's kind of funny. I mean, this is actually tangentially related to Inherent Vice. And one of the things I think is powerful about Inherent Vice, you know, a lot of people talk about whether or not it's a confusing movie or not, or whether it's you know, not that. Uh, <laughs> whether you know, or uh, and whether or not that matters. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot, a lot of that's, a, that's something that goes around a lot of the discussions. Of inherent vice. I mean, I've heard it discussed on this show. I've read you know, tons and tons of stuff about that. And for me, part of the appeal of inherent vice versus a movie like, say, Chinatown, which I also love. Um, but you know, Chinatown, the plotting is like a Swiss watch. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it very, it's very clear. There's a lot of, it's very complicated, but there's a lot of clarity to it. And I think they each have different appeals, and they're each equally valid. And I think part of the appeal of Chinatown is that it gives shape to life's mysteries and complexities. And I think part of the appeal of Inherent Vice is that it respects life's mysteries and complexities in a way that it's sort of, uh, you know, you, you, you go to, in a way, Inherent Vice is closer, at least for me, to actual lived experience. And what I mean by that, mm-hmm. and how I'm getting back to my Q&A thing with that, is that, you know, life to me is so... My life is completely directionless. I mean, <laughs> it's not that I don't have a direction. It's just that my life doesn't usually go the direction yeah. I have. So, I mean, believe me, I had a direction when I was, you know, when I was 20, I knew what my direction was. It was that I was going to be the next William Friedkin. Well, that didn't really happen. <laughs> uh, that was the direction I thought I was going in. But life, you know, it just takes you down so many weird detours. And like when people ask me how I fell into that thing of moderating the Q&As, you know, I have to. I, it, it's this very circuitous route of random circumstances and other weird jobs, some of which I didn't like, that all kind of ended up leading to that. And you know, because like basically, I again, it's the greatest job I've ever had, getting paid to moderate these Q and A's, often at like guild screenings and stuff. But nobody grows up saying, you know, what do you want to do with your life? I want to be a guild Q and A moderator. <laughs> you know, it's not something. It, it, in a, it's a weird thing because it's not a job I ever thought of or knew existed, and it ended up being the perfect job for me. Um, so I'm not sure. I don't know if you get exactly what my point is there in terms no, of no, no, connecting it, it to inherent vice. But uh, but the other interesting thing about that is I feel so comfortable doing that and being on the end of asking the questions, ask, you know, whether it's Michael Madsen or PT or whoever. Uh, and this, I feel very, uh, it's, it's a, it's a very queasy sensation being on the other end of the, <laughs> the interview process here. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm, again, I get, I get very self-conscious in a weird, yeah. in a weird way. Well, it's more of a conversation yeah, than yeah. an interview. Yeah. Don't sweat. Don't sweat. <laughs> it's cool. It's and good hey, practice for me to know what the, the other. And you know talking. how to talk. Dude, you did a commentary track for uh, <laughs> Judgment at Nuremberg. True. The three-hour Stanley Kramer Nazi courtroom drama. <laughs> I'm sure you can handle shooting the shit with me for a little bit about a movie that you dig. A uh, good point. Um, and I like inherent as much as I love Judgment at Nuremberg. I, I, I like inherent advice more than I like Judgment. Laugh at Nuremberg. riot though it may yeah, be. Yeah. Uh, I think we you might have a little more fun. It, it is funnier than people give it credit for, but uh, <laughs> but not by much. Well, the other thing I wanted to say about well that 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 Q and A in specific, the Madsen Q and A. And I know we're already doing what we always do in the show, which is going so far afield from Inherent Vice. But you got him to reveal 
so many things that I don't think anyone knew about, for instance, the making of Kill Bill Mm -hmm. and about how Warren Beatty both came to be in the film and then not in the film and how Carradine came to replace him, the circumstances. And I'm not going to go into that because I also think that that was such a magic night. That needs to be one of those things. If you were there, you got to find out about the details. (laughs) And if you weren't there, that's just you got to go to the next one. But you managed to unearth all of these kind of hidden gems out of Michael about the making of that film and, and Reservoir Dogs and, and Once Upon a Time. And not that I have any hidden access to Inherent Vice, but I feel like a big part of this show is sitting down with someone else and getting their take on this film. And we might not be unearthing the making of gems, although you have... You, I had to check the logbook, but I do believe you and one other guest, Drew McQueenie, are the only two guests who have actually interviewed PTA. So you might have a little bit of extra scoop that I'm going to interrogate you about. But uh, a big part of the show for me is just unearthing these little mysteries and these little hidden things out of the movie that I didn't, know, I didn't see otherwise and that I wouldn't have noticed otherwise, even though I've seen this film to a compulsive, sickening DSM-5 degree seeing it through your eyes or any other guest's eyes we we bring out more each time mm-hmm. and that's i feel like that's a big part of what you do in your q a's is you'll hold a q a for a film that i mean my god i've already seen once upon a time in hollywood like a sickening amount of times yeah. double digits but you got michael to talk about it in a way that allowed me to see it differently and that's what we're doing here so don't sweat don't freak <laughs> out we're cool um, how many times have you seen inherent vice do you know Oh Jesus! Um, no, I, I yeah. don't know. I, a lot. Um, I can't even trust, uh, you know, Letterbox because I started watching it way before I used. Right. A lot, like, uh, God, maybe I don't know, nine or ten times theatrically, and then God knows how many times on uh, Blu-ray. Um, but it's a lot, a lot. Like it's it's one of those. It's also, in addition to being a movie I love and will rewatch because I really want to dig into it, it's one of those movies. It's a good late night. I'm gonna. It's it's a it's a go to title for me along with Walter Hill's The Driver as mm, my my movie, late yeah. night. Mm-hmm. If I'm sleepy, it's The Driver because it's like a hard <laughs> eighty nine minutes. Yeah. If I'm gonna stay up a while, it's Inherent Vice, and it becomes like the background hum of my late night. Well, I don't, yeah, I don't know if this is a story for this podcast because now we're really gonna get peripheral. But since you brought Let's up, do it. since it's you brought it. up Walter Hill, this is a podcast about Inherent Vice. Well, you can't be too. Well, peripheral. since you brought up Walter Hill being and The Driver being your other favorite movie, I feel like you, uh, if no one else, will appreciate this. I mean, Walter Hill was actually the first director I ever met um, when I moved to L.A. I, I was when I lived in Chicago. I went to, to school as an undergrad at this place called Columbia College in Chicago, and while I was there. Uh, you know, I, I, I went to school initially thinking I wanted to be a filmmaker. And then while I was at Columbia, I started writing about movies and getting a few things published. And then I thought, oh, maybe I want to be a critic. And one of the things I had published was this uh, review of Walter Hill's Trespass. So oh. then I moved out here to go to grad school at USA, uh-huh. uh, USC in critical studies, uh, thinking I wanted to be a critic. Although by the time I was done with that critical studies degree, I was back to wanting to be a filmmaker. So it's this crazy... Again, my life doesn't have a lot of direction. But anyway, when I moved out here, uh, I was this would have been the summer of 93, and I was, you know, wandering around Hollywood Boulevard. This was pre, not pre-internet necessarily, but certainly pre-anybody using the internet for, mm-hmm. you know, to, it, wasn't, it wasn't the font of information it is now. So anyway, I go into uh, Larry Edmonds' bookstore, 
mm-hmm. and they have this thing called the Hollywood Creative Directory, which you know I don't think exists anymore. But I'm flipping through it, and it's just got all these addresses for like production companies around Hollywood. And I look, and there's one in there for Walter Hill on the Sony <laughs> lot. And I'm thinking, what, what? This is Walter? I can write Walter Hill a letter. So I go home immediately. You know, this 20-something film student. I write Walter Hill a fan letter, send him a copy of the Trespass review, and kind of forget about it. Yeah. And then a week or two later. I get this phone call. I'm sitting at home in my underwear watching Talk Soup, and the phone <laughs> rings. I answer the phone, and this woman says, uh, is this Jim Hemphill? And I said, yeah. And she said, this is, this is Carol Johnson. I work for Walter Hill. And she said, Walter uh, read your letter. He was very impressed. He wants to take you out to lunch. Jeez. Uh, and so he actually was like sort of my mentor through film school when I was out here and stuff. That's kind of a long, boring story. but No, it's um, not boring. And in fact, like many of your stories, it um, makes the jealous bile in the back <laughs> of my throat like start to dissolve Sorry. my teeth um, <laughs> in a rage as I listen to stories like this and go, oh, God. Walter Hill, goddamn. But I feel like he, you know, it's, it's he was such a god to me at that moment when I yeah. and still is, but when I was in film school especially, I feel like if you're a young screenwriter, there's no one better to learn from than Walter Hill. The both, uh, haiku samurai yeah, pros. I mean, both from watching his movies and then, you know, if you can get your yeah, getting your hands on the driver screenplay, I mean, it's just fantastic. You know, it really it does teach you how much you can strip down your writing. Like there's a there's a point in the driver's screenplay where it says something like interior hotel room sleazy and that's the entire physical <laughs> it, description of what if you, you get. look at it on the page it looks like a poem yeah it, it's structured and it, it i mean i've never seen a script structured like that either yeah. even though it has like the bullet points and the headers it's just these there'll be like a line and like you said they'll just say sleazy that's yeah. it that's 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 your setting it's incredible. Yeah, yeah. We should do a Walter Hill podcast, you and I. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in. I can talk Walter Hill all day and night. Uh, Streets of Fire, I've probably seen as many times as you've seen Inherent Vice. I would assume. Would it break your heart if I told you that? Don't say not it. One, don't don't not say one it. One of don't. my favorite Hill stop, films. Stop. No, I, I would probably ha- more happily watch Southern Comfort. Well, than Southern I Comfort's would. great too. Yeah. It's, what a, oh boy, we're <laughs> we're so far off. But hey, if you're listening and you're looking for a really good. Uh, vivisection and dissection of uh, machismo and masculinity in a group dynamic, you can do a lot worse than Walter Hill's Southern Comfort. Absolutely. A lot yeah. worse. It's a great, great movie. Yeah. Absolutely great movie. Um, oh, boy, now I want to talk about, about Walter Hill. <laughs> We're not going to do this. We're not going to do this. Well, We're going to talk about I'll connect it back to Paul Thomas Anderson for you, which is uh, I went to a double feature at the Arrow in Santa Monica, a 70 millimeter prints of Streets of Fire and The Last Action Hero. I think the only thing they had in common was what that it was 70. Grouping. Yeah. What a pairing. I think it was just that Grant could get his hands on 70 millimeter prints of both of them. <laughs> uh, but at the Streets of Fire uh, 70 millimeter screening was uh, Paul Thomas Anderson and Maya Rudolph. So Paul Thomas Anderson is a Streets of Fire fan. Or maybe he's a Last Action Hero fan. <laughs> I guess that's possible. <laughs> <laughs> you say that with such disdain. Yeah, no, I like Last Action. No, I, I like Last Action Hero. I'm a big uh, Last Action Hero apologist, actually. Bless your heart. As am I. As am I. And I don't, I don't hate Streets of Fire. Mm-hmm. It's just not my. Yeah. It's not my top three. It's hard for me to tell with Streets Hill. of Fire if it's a movie. I don't know if age has something to do with it. With that one, like when you see it, like I don't know. I'm assuming you're younger than me, um, and. So you probably came to it on video or something. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming you mm-hmm. didn't see it theatrically. I did not. Uh, and I don't know if it's the kind of movie that if you saw it theatrically and you were a kid, at the mo- at that moment when that kind of style of filmmaking, you know, it sort of, you know, came out in the wake of, you know, Flashdance and Adrian Lyne and all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. And like, I, I maybe it felt, I, I don't know, it, it maybe it felt more not the word, not normal wouldn't be the word, but it just might have. 
you might have been maybe it's I was more accepting of it somehow. Yeah, and, no, I get it. And maybe that music was more appealing to me because I think Streets of Fire is like the greatest soundtrack in the history of movies, next to The Graduate. So, um, you know, I think that might be an age nostalgia <laughs> thing, admittedly. Well, we can connect this to Inherent Vice in that Streets of Fire is is a really fascinating rock and roll adventure mystery fantasia yeah and i think you could make a pretty good case that so is inherent vice i don't know how good a double feature they'd make together <laughs> but i do think that they both that they both cultivate their very own insular not quite reality world that but that also feels very lived in and very it feels like you could open a door and walk into it. It just happens to be in an alternate dimension. And they're both movies that are uh, maximalist movies. By Getting back to that point I made that you read earlier about Paul Thomas Anderson being a director who, whose movies give you more of what movies have to offer than yeah. any other director. Yeah. Uh, Streets of Fire is kind of that kind of movie. I mean, that movie has... Before the opening credits start, there's a musical number, a car chase, a kidnapping... A, a brawl, a big, huge brawl. I mean, that stuff all happens before you even get to the opening credits of Streets of Fire. And uh, William, William Defoe as yeah. a villainous leather daddy. Incredible performance. And, uh, by yeah, Defoe it is. It is in that movie. And so, hey, and see, see what we did, everybody. See how we looped that back to Inherent <laughs> Vice. You are in the hands of professionals here. <laughs> we know what we're doing. It sounds like we're just walking around, but no, there is a. We looped back. We brought it back. Now, I am going to go back to Inherent Vice. We should probably start talking about that film once or twice because I know there's a couple other movies we're probably going to chit chat about as I was saying you are I believe one of only two guests on the show thus far who have interviewed PTA and as such you bring I think a slightly different perspective to the film you're you're like a lot of our guests you do love the film but in talking to the creator you've been able to get under the hood and poke around and ask, you know, why is this thing connected to that thing and why does this work that way? And something that really struck me in an interview you did with him was you were talking to him about how his earlier works were visually defined by the big old scope aspect ratio and how he's gone on to, in your words, narrow the canvas a little bit and dropping down to 185. And then on Inherent Vice, there are some really, like, claustrophobe shots that are almost like 166 or 133 and but two episodes back I was talking to film critic and culture writer Lindsay Romaine and this was the episode dealing with Doc meeting Hope Harlingen for the first time and I was talking to her about how that so much of that scene is just Doc and Hope sitting in a breakfast nook and it's a two shot a really cramped two shot against a very nondescript cream white wall not really the most visually stunning thing in the whole wide world uh unless you you like those actors faces a whole lot and we do they're great but it's it's kind of a surprising shot design from the guy that gave us magnolia right and we were talking about you know why would they do that why would ellswood go along with that why would pta want that kind of thing as his as his canvas and for me, I said, you know, I viewed it as it was Anderson kind of visually winnowing away, doing the opposite of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and winnowing away all of the 70s signifiers so that all the things that these characters are going through, not being able to let go of what they love, not able to let go of the era that's passing them by that they, they so desperately wish they could hang on to, it's a way of making that timeless and making it a movie 
that does what I that I think it does do, which is be just as valid and pertinent about its points in 1970 as it is now in 2020. But I'm totally wrong, I think, because in reading your interview, you basically got him to to admit that um, uh, a big part of that for him, he was just trying to mirror the panel art of the fabulous furry freak brothers, correct? Mm-hmm. Like that just that that's the kind of thing right there like that blows my mind. I don't know how I missed that because I've read your interview before, but I totally missed that that little bit where he's like, no, no, I was just making a comic book, like an underground comic strip. And so he's almost giving this that almost like, uh, yeah, like the 133 as opposed to scope just for that very reason. And that's why you're here today. <laughs> well, and I, but I still don't think that your assessment of it is wrong mm-hmm. either. I mean, I think everything you said about it is correct. And I also think with Paul Thomas Anderson, now I'm going to make a confession here, mm-hmm. which is that I, so Inherent Vice came out, what, six years, five, six years ago? Yeah, 2014. Um, in the time since then, you know, I revisit all of his movies a lot, and I do love them all to varying degrees. I mean, I'm not, I you know, I'm not like obsessive about Hard Eight. You know, like I like that one, but I think it's kind of okay. That's his. I think we all agree that's the outlier. Yeah, that's his apprentice work, whatever. Yeah. And then it's a great. Um, I mean, it's a great movie. It's just absolutely. It's just it's the formative movie yeah, where you yeah. f- you feel the future films yeah that will come out of uh, that's this, more but it's value. not quite on their level yeah that's more what i find enjoyable about it now is almost more seeing the things that are like the hints of what's to come but yeah. uh, you know but in general all of his other movies i do love for different reasons but i have to admit that i on the one hand i understand intellectually why he has gone in the direction he's gone where it, it is like you say a kind of narrowing of focus and scope Mm -hmm. and there's something to be gained from that for sure i mean i think there is um you know there there's i love his close-ups i mean i love i love what he you know and he i think another quote from the interview i did with him is he said something to the effect of that all he really cares about anymore is the actors faces actors faces um and that's all great but i have to admit i've gotten to a point where i like his Recent, I love his recent movies, but I love them less than mm. I love Boogie Nights and Magnolia because I feel like, uh, I guess, I guess in a way, I feel like he's holding something back from us. It's kind of like he, the fact that he has the capability to do what he does in Boogie Nights and mm-hmm. Magnolia mm-hmm. that are so just that he, that he has that kind of visual imagination. They're um, visceral. Yeah, They're visceral on a way. In a way that I think, and I, I'm not going to say I don't mean this as a complaint, but just as an observation. Uh, if you hear that, PTA, it's Jim that's complaining, <laughs> not me. No, but uh, I, I think that the ma- the master onward, yeah. there is a that visceral nature that is even in um, the coldness of there will be blood is still there. There's viscerality is not a word, but there is a no, viscerality imagine, yeah. that diminishes and becomes diffused as time has gone on. His, yeah. I feel like his is the filmography that most matches that of Radiohead. Uh-huh. In that you start off with the rock and roll, and then it starts to get a little weird in the middle, mm-hmm. and then towards the end, it's just it is that kind of narrowing away of like, nope, no more guitars. Um, sometimes we're, we're it's, not, it's gonna seem like we don't even have time signatures anymore. We're just gonna get kind of weird and bleep bloop 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 bleep kraut rocky with it. And there's a, and there's a purity to that. And and I would say in the case of Inherent Vice, it is absolutely the right choice for that movie. Partly for in terms of some of the things you're saying. I mean, I think. You know, Inherent Vice is so much a movie about 
people who are kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the times are kind of changing in ways they don't like and they're feeling, you know, they, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense for inherent vice in a way, as freewheeling as it is in terms of the tone jumping and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. in a way it wouldn't make sense for it to be as freewheeling with its camera as Boogie Nights yeah. is. You know, um, and it would also be the expected thing to do, and it would be the expected thing to do. But, um, but yeah, I, uh, I I have to admit, I do. By the time you got to Phantom Thread, which I love, mm-hmm. uh, and again, I think there's like a purity to Phantom Thread and and a focus that's different from what you get from Magnolia, obviously. But I have to admit, by the time I got to Phantom Thread, I was kind of longing to see him on that kind of huge canvas again and shooting in scope and yeah. whipping his camera around you know i i have to say like i um and this is going to sound funny coming from me because i made a movie that was essentially two people talking for 96 minutes <laughs> and it's i mean the, the trouble with the truth you know the big action scene in that is like a waiter bringing them dessert i mean it's it's not <laughs> it is the most static character driven movie anyone's ever made and yet, and so it's weird because I understand his, um, that thing, I understand him as a filmmaker saying that all he cares about is the actor's faces, because that's kind of the way I am as, an, mm-hmm. as a director, but as a viewer, I'm not that way. Like, I like I would yeah. watch, I, yeah. like, as a viewer, I kind of like, again, I like the maximalists. I yeah. like, uh, you know, Magnolia. I like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I like 1941. I like movies that, <laughs> you know, I really like that kind of stuff. And Inherent Vice... Um, It'll be interesting. Well, we'll get to the the scene in, in, in a little bit, but it's kind of the the scene we're going to talk about today is kind of an interesting. Uh, it's kind of an interesting one in how almost anti style it is in terms of the way it's it shot. is, and there's a there's a story behind that. We're going to get into that. Okay, but I think you're. I mean, I get what you're saying, and I don't disagree in that there are. I mean, we can always go back and watch those movies. We can always go back and watch Boogie Nights and Punch Drunk and Magnolia. But at the same time, I get that there is that that almost kind of show-offy young man's verve that he brings to his early work. Yeah. That I, you know, it's interesting. Uh, someone was asking him a couple of press junkets ago. Maybe it was for the master about you know if you could go back and talk to yourself on the set of Magnolia, which he said has been a, was kind of an emotionally difficult shoot for him because of him. Lo- it's about him. Part of it is about him losing his father, and uh, he, he's like, "What would you?" What would you say to yourself now, the master era PTA to Magnolia era PTA? And he's like, I would tell him to calm the fuck down. Just calm down. And I, I feel like that ethos yeah. has really been brought to bear yeah. in the second half of his filmography. And there's not just a stylistic diffusion, but a kind there's a kind of there's a a diffusion of of plot and also even kind of visceral emotions because the movies are still about visceral emotions and the characters are feeling visceral emotions but they are not I'm gonna, I'm getting get so sick of saying the word visceral yeah but they're not presented in a visceral way yeah uh, and everything is so kind of and another word I'm gonna keep repeating diffuse like you know I think I'm a relatively smart guy I had to watch the master a second time to realize that phone call at the end was a fucking dream. Spoiler uh-huh. alert! But uh, I, I, the first time watching, I'm like, okay, he's in a theater and they're bringing him a phone. I got, I don't know, it's a weird movie already. Maybe this is what they did in the '50s. I don't mm. know. I don't know. And but it's stuff like that where connections are not made explicit. And I think that, I think that he, all, I think some of that comes with confidence. And I think that he's a director who is 
has an almost David Lynchian confidence in his instincts that he no longer feels like he's got to do that writerly thing of scaffolding and connecting dots for the audience. He's like, the people that are going to get it are going to get it. Yeah. Eventually they'll figure out that no one has a phone brought to you in the middle of a theater. You're, Freddie's dreaming this. And I feel like the same can be said of so many of the elements of Phantom Thread, which I also love. There's not a PTA movie that I don't love. Right. Um, and, and, and But I, what I do love, and I, and I agree with you, I do kind of miss the, the, the rowdier... Yeah. The kid, well, the, the kid that was clearly under the sway of Altman and Scorsese. Yeah. But as you said, because inherent vice is so in tune to Doc Sportello's mindset, it's not the film is not confusing, but the film's plot is put together as Doc is putting it together. Right. So there is going to be this weird kind of jingle jangle, hazy lazy connections between plot points made because we're the plot points are being connected the way doc is connecting them because they're connecting for us as they're connecting for him and he's stoned off his ass and kind of confused and there's way more going on that he can grasp and so that's how that information is presented to us so i will say while i agree with you i do think that if there was a single film in his his oeuvre which is a fun word to say (laughs) if there is a single film in his oeuvre that is deserving of this kind of kid a version Mm -hmm. of pta it would be inherent vice i would agree and i would also just say as a sidebar that uh his comment about magnolia and that he would tell his younger self to calm down this is exactly why there should be no such thing as directors being allowed to go back and recut or mess with their own films he he said he'd also cut the the the, uh the song the sing-along yeah, um, wise up. This is why. This is why a director. You cannot listen to directors about their own <laughs> movies. I, they are. Just, I mean, I, you know. And, and I. And I. Again, I understand this impulse. Like this is the thing about PT. Um, I am on my best day. I will never be one tenth as talented as yeah. PT is. But I relate to a lot of this stuff. Like I relate to that feeling about Magnolia. I actually had to like, I don't know, six months ago or so. Uh, I had to watch my first movie again to remaster it for Blu-ray and do a commentary track. Did you die inside? And it was, you know, all I could think was how differently I would do that movie yeah, now. Yeah. And But then I realized, like, all the things I, I – it, it wouldn't necessarily mean it was better. I mean, it would be better technically for sure because mm-hmm. I was – you know, it was a miracle I got the camera aimed in the general direction of the actors. I was so <laughs> inexperienced and, and clumsy. But um, but a lot of the things I wouldn't I – wouldn't, I would do differently. It's kind of like PT with Magnolia. There are things that I look at now that I cringe because they're a little too, I, I wouldn't say bold is the word, but like I was unafraid of offending people. And I was mm-hmm. unafraid, I was unaf- there were a lot of things I was unafraid of then that now I would be afraid of. And I don't think it would be a better movie if it didn't have those things. Like it mm-hmm. might be a less offensive movie. You might be more comfortable. I now, would be more comfortable. But with the it. movie would be. But this is why these guys like Ridley Scott, Michael Mann, it's like somebody needs to take their fucking. <laughs> Avids away from them. Like, don't. I mean, I know, you know, I'm on the, you know, the, the, this is the legacy of the one heat minute. Be real careful, Jim. We never know who's listening. Well, here's Be the real thing. careful. Well, let me preface this by saying Heat is hands down my favorite action film of all time. Michael Mann, hands down one of my favorite directors. But the guy needs to, like, just leave these things alone. Here's my The beef. commentary you've heard today is not endorsed or uh, supported by One well, Heat Minute Productions. Here's my, here's my beef. Here's the thing. <laughs> uh, let me clarify this about the whole director's cuts issue. Is Although I do agree with you, Mike, uh, uh, Miami Vice, theatrical cut or nothing at all. 
Okay, now I'm going to contradict myself. Oh, shit. Because I actually, like, I actually do like the director's like the boats? Of, I do like the director's cut of Miami Vice. However, here's here's my whole beef with all these things. is it's I have no problem with directors recutting their movies and doing this. What I don't like is when it replaces the original version as the, the text. accessible. It's the only text. Yeah, as the accessible one you can get. Like when... Like, I don't like any version of Apocalypse Now other than the 1979 theatrical mm-hmm. release. Like, I really like that one. Redux, I didn't care for, and I didn't like this new quote-unquote final cut or whatever it the, was. That, basically the halfway between both. Yeah, you know? I'm not a fan of either of those. And not, I mean, I shouldn't say, it's not that I don't like them. Obviously, they're like... It's yeah. a brilliant movie yeah. no matter what <laughs> it's cut It's brilliant you no watch. matter what, but, com- but relatively, I by far still prefer the 79 mm-hmm. theatrical cut. So when Coppola put out that Blu-ray that had the theatrical cut and Redux, you know, and it was like all in one package, fine. That's fine. That's, that I have no problem with. It's that it's when some of these guys do this thing, Lucas or Mann or whoever. Or when they... E.T. comes out and the FBI are armed yeah. with walkie-talkies. Because this is the thing about movies is movies are, his- they're not just, you know, they're historical documents. I mean, they're documents not only, uh, they're documents of, not only like what the filmmaker's state of mind was at that time, but of what their resources were at mm-hmm. that time, what kinds of fights they had with the studio, you know. And I get the filmmaker wanting to change things after the fact, but I just feel like you're those movies aren't yours anymore. Once mm-hmm. they've gone out in the world, they're ours. And even if they're painful, I don't know why I got on this rant about. Oh, this. We're, well, Clearly, hey, I've, been, hey. I've been holding it in. I've been holding this vitriol towards. Well, we, we, and, we did give you a coffee right yeah. before which you are which you're drinking right now. So maybe you're just getting amped up. But no, I, I also agree. came here from Bad Boys for Life, so maybe I was really uh, <laughs> a little oh, amped up. Oh boy! Oh god, that's going to be a whole other show. But no, I you know I agree with you, and I think there's also something to be said culturally. Even if a film is painful to watch at times, you know, I really, really wish I could enjoy. And I can, on a goddamn word again, visceral level, I really wish I could enjoy Temple of Doom more than I do now. But there's a lot when you watch that movie that's just like, oh, God, Jesus. Steven, I know the mm-hmm. divorce was rough, but buddy, c- come on. Um, but there's also something to be said about keeping these kind of ugly cultural, uh, uh, ugly documents to be a kind of a cultural yardstick of where we were. Uh, not relatively not too long ago, and when and so you know God, I, I can't even imagine what would happen if um, someone tried to recut a film like that to mm-hmm. make to to put in the the FBI walkie talkies, right? Um, but uh, no, no, I totally agree with you. Uh, and I we got on this rant because we were talking about PTA telling young PTA right. to calm the fuck yeah. down and to somehow cut out Wise Up, which. That's the big. Insane. That's, the, that's insane. There's that, and again, spoiler. You know, like, jeez, uh, twenty-one-year-old spoiler here. <laughs> that and Jason Robards dying and the hand holding with Tom. If that's like the the two big emotional yeah. crescendos, and of course the smile at the end. Another spoiler. Um, you you cut those, and it's like there's the heart, and that's that's kind of in a weird way though. That is kind of what I think he's been excising a little bit are those big heart moments, and maybe he just feels at this level of his craft that that's the obvious thing to do to have those big heart moments in there and it's a little maybe a little too obvious to to go for the big emotional beat which i will say is another reason why i love inherent vice because while i do feel like inherent vice has those diffuse moments and is can be very tricky with its presentation of information there are a lot of big heart moments yeah. in this film absolutely um, I ball like a baby when Doc is sitting at his table with Sortilege and he's realizing he's never going to get the love of his life. He's realizing that whatever they are, it's not what he wanted it to be. And she's become inherent vice to him. Another thing that eggs 
eggs break, glass shatters, and this is gone. He can't insure against this. It's gone. So what's he going to do now? What's on his mind? And for like the first time in God knows how many months or years, it's not Shasta Faye. He says, it's Little Kid Blues. And all he can think about is making this one family get put back together. That, that breaks my heart. Mm-hmm. I, oh, my God. You're going to have to like fan my face here for <laughs> me for a minute. Or, hell, um, that final scene. I think that there is a very – I. Th- for someone who misses maybe that younger, rowdier PTA, if there is a single moment I can point to in his more mature, kind of, again, post There Will Be Blood Works, where you can feel that young, the guy behind Boogie Nights, that final scene of Inherent Vice, I feel like that's a wry, romantic 25-year-old kind of peeking his head out for a minute and just putting that little tweak in the scene and then backing out really, really quickly. I agree. And I don't want to sound like, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm talking about like one of those people used to talk about Woody Allen saying they like the early funny ones better or something. <laughs> like I do, I do love, I do uh, love this stuff. It's just, I kind of, I'm hoping that someday what we'll get from PT, like I kind of want to see his Wolf of Wall Street. It's kind of like when Marty, like just, you know, Marty's however old he was when he made Wolf of Wall Street <laughs> could still just go fucking yeah. crazy. And I kind of want, I just, I hope we still get like, I hope there's another crazy PT one in like, there somewhere coming down PTA, the line. PTA, you can go back and make your silence. You can make silence. And that too. That's and okay that's too. great. Absolutely. Throw us one Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, just give me one. I just, want, I just want like one or two more Wolf of Wall Streets from, from PT. Get, get Mark Wahlberg and the gang back together <laughs> and let's, let's do one more big one. One more big one. I'd like to see that. We're going to switch gears. You're a noir guy, yes? I'm a what guy? You're a film noir yeah. guy. Uh, Although not the expert on it that some of the people you've had on here are. Oh. I mean. Well, you're, you're going to hold your own. Again, <laughs> y- people come to you for a reason, Jim. Don't be self-deprecating. Be, be nice to yourself on this show. <laughs> be nice to yourself. You're a noir guy. I'm curious, where does Inherent Vice fall in the pantheon of neo-noirs for you, especially the sub-sub-sub-genre of the, the SoCal neo-noir, or does it does it even do that? Is it even a neo-noir to you? Because for some people, it is not. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's definitely, it falls in the, tra- I mean, certainly Long Goodbye is kind of an obvious, uh, what's the word? Uh, pre-precedent. Antecedent. Antecedent. Or precedent. Antecedent, precedent. I don't know. I Clearly, I need, I, you know. We're supposed to be writers, I was just Jim. Say, Jesus. You guys claim to be writers. Um, yeah, I mean, Long Goodbye. And, you know, my favorite all-time neo, you know, uh, my, my, probably my favorite all-time neo-noir is uh, Night Moves, the Arthur Penn movie. Oh, we just brought that up uh, in the last episode. Yeah, written by Alan Sharp, the, you know. Uh, I'll continue my hyperbole, the greatest screenwriter ever <laughs> who ever lived, Alan Sharp. Um, you know, and I, I, Inherent Vice definitely kind of feels like it's of a piece with thing. I mean, more Long Goodbye probably than The Night Moves because Long Goodbye has that kind of funky, goofy sense of humor. Like, I mean, the, you know, the, the interesting thing about Inherent Vice, I mean, you've talked about it a lot on this podcast about the kind of, uh, like, just, I don't know if I'd use the word juvenile sense of humor, but it's a very silly Oh it, no, it, sure. It, you know, it's got the, 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 this very silly sense of humor um, combined with great seriousness, which I would say, like Long Goodbye, is kind of uh, has that too. I mean, that's a hallmark of uh, Thomas Pynchon is that you're going to have this radiant, incandescent, labyrinthian prose, and then you're going to have the funniest dick and fart joke that right. you've ever heard, and they're going to be mashed up together like a big gooey sandwich. Right, and, and which I should make I'm make a confession here, mm-hmm. which is I've never been able to get through the novel. Well, uh, I don't think you'd be the first person in the world who hasn't been able to get through a Thomas Pinchon book. I don't think that that uh, that's a that's a pr- 
particular or peculiar he's brand a, he's of shame. A, that you he's have to very wear. strange for me because I intellectually I feel like I should love his stuff, mm-hmm. you know, and yet there is something about that style. And it's very weird that I like the, I like it as translated by PT. Mm-hmm. And part of the problem with Inherent Vice is that book I never tried to read until after I'd seen the movie, and I think that sort of affected it in a weird way too. Did you read the book before you saw the movie? Or I, I did. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I, I I much prefer I much much prefer the film. Mm-hmm. The film is much more uh, on the, at my speed, and I like the I like the romanticism, and I think that you know for all for as much. Uh, Air as we've just given to PTA kind of being a bit of a colder guy cinematically uh, or a little bit more at arm's dist- at arm's length from the viewer uh, I do feel like the his version of the story is suffused with a much deeper romanticism and a sweetness and a hopefulness that is all but totally absent from the book the book has a lot of heart but it is also it is a very bitter angry angry look back at how far we fell from the goals and the ideals Mm -hmm. of all the various capital M movements Mm -hmm. in the 1960s. Yeah, well, and that's another way in which the movie Inherent Vice, uh, I guess that's where the the Night Moves comparison comes in a little bit. I mean, that's another movie, you know, Night Moves is kind of a Vietnam and Watergate hangover movie. Yeah, exactly. Um, And Inherent Vice is, I don't know how you would describe it, I know you've, you've called it it's a hangover, hangover movie. It's, a, it's, just, you know, it's just a hangover, just a hangover movie. movie I, keep call, I keep calling the '60s. You know, it's, it's also a new young movie, so I keep calling the '60s. It's the decade and the damage done. That's that's yeah. what this is. And that's one of my favorite subgenre. I don't know if it's exactly a subgenre, but I consider it a subgenre movie is like era hangover movies. Sure, it is. You yeah. know, like The Wrestler is like an '80s hangover yeah. movie. You know that I love, and and um, so I would almost put Inherent Vice more in that kind of category. Um, I'm trying to think what other neo noirs. I mean, I really am a fan actually of. That strain of neo-noir that is, as you were saying about Sportello, that is so linked to the protagonist's point of view that it is it both makes sense and yet seems like wildly confusing in some ways the first mm-hmm. time you see it. Like I, I, another favorite movie of mine that I think is very underrated is uh, getting back to the Chinatown thing is The Two Jakes. Um, oh, boy, yeah. <laughs> no, it's a good old boy. It's a good okay. old boy. It's a good old boy. <laughs> I thought that was an old boy like you thought. I've suddenly lost no, all no. credibility No, I mean, here. I'm not, it's not Chinatown, yeah. but it's, it's a, it's a, it is a worthy continuation of yeah. the Jake Giddies. Yeah, I mean, I think Two Jakes is a really great movie, but it is, it's one of those movies, I mean, the first time I saw Two Jakes, it, I, I like, it seemed like the most ridiculously convoluted mm-hmm. movie I'd ever seen. I couldn't make heads or tails of it. And then, you see it again, and it does make make sense. But, um, but yeah, you know, Sportello. I mean, he's kind of he's very much like Jake is, or like Marlowe in uh, in Long Goodbye. I mean, these guys who kind of just uh, trying to I'm trying to articulate this. They are basically, you know. I mean, for, it's kind of a cliche to say. I mean, it's, but they're kind of like decent men in an indecent world at an indecent totally. time. No, totally. It, it, it's it's just I think it's a surprise when you find out they are because especially with someone like Doc, I think you go into the movie going, oh, well, he's going to be this lax, morally lax stoner that, you know, is kind of up for anything. It doesn't really give it. But, you know, it, I think he's much closer to the Altman Marlowe who's willing to shoot uh, Lennox Again, spoiler. <laughs> if you <laughs> to shoot long goodbye by now, to <laughs> shoot Linux at the end of the long goodbye because he he lied to him and he he's a man who literally cannot 
comprehend or allow someone who's supposed to be his best friend to lie to him. I think he kills uh, Lennox and Alanga by more because he lied to him than because Lennox killed his own wife. He just can't stand that someone would betray a sacred trust. And I think that these kind of, so I don't think it's, I don't think it's a cliche. I think it's just, it's, it's a hallmark of the subgenre that the, these kind of morally unswerving uh, men who are just trying to hold hold the thing together, hold the the world together, or their little corner of it as long as they can. And another hallmark of the genre is this sort of. There's always a great scene in these movies where that hero comes face to face with someone who, with a sort of symbol of moral vacancy. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, and so you know, obviously, like, you know, Giddis, uh, you know, coming face face with the John Huston character and then like an inherent vice you know to me one of the key scenes in that movie is the scene between Doc and the character Martin Donovan plays Crocker oh, Fenway I knew, you, I knew you were going to go for Donovan and I'm so happy you <laughs> did because that's exact when you said moral vacancy yeah. which is such a great see you are a writer after all Jim you hear that <laughs> but no that's yeah I'm going to let you keep going. I just had to interject to go, yes, yeah. Martin Donovan. I mean, that scene is so – there is just – you know, that is a scene – that is to me one of the scenes where you do realize that uh, Sportello is this kind of moral figure in a way that someone like Crocker Fenway never will be. And just – you know, and, and these movies – you know, another thing that, about these movies and why I think they speak to today so well. Like, for example, you know, you're, you're talking about Inherent Vice having relevance to 1970 and also 2020. I mean, you know, I always say – a good period movie is always about the period in which it takes place and the period in which it's made. Mm-hmm. And then a great period movie is about the period in which it takes place, the period in which it was made, and whatever period you're watching time it. you're watching it. You know, and I think that Inherent Vice uh, or Chinatown or Night Moves or any of these movies, uh, you know, there's something in them that speaks to the era we're in now where I, I constantly... You know, I look at the people who are in power, whether it's in politics or, you know, running Facebook or Amazon or whatever, these guys who are just in immense positions of power. And I just wonder to myself, like, how they don't – how they aren't bothered. And maybe they are bothered, but but, I don't but they're not bothered they enough to, to change their, their ways. But it's like I, I just wonder, like, how are they not bothered by – the repercussions of their actions on other people's lives. How are they so careless mm-hmm. with other people's lives? And that's something that I feel like, you know, you see in, again, a Crocker Fenway or the John Houston character in Chinatown. And there's that great speech that Giddis has in Chinatown about, like, you know, how much more can you eat? How much more can you, you know, and I always, I always wonder that about these guys. Yeah. Um, but does, the, and doesn't he say something like, you'll find, you know, you, you can be capable of anything? Yeah. Uh, that, that there's... It's almost that, that Orwellian 1984. It's just power for power's sake. Imagine a boot stamping on the face of humanity forever. That's, yeah. It's, it's that. Yeah. The pursuit of that. Yeah. And I think that's what you get in that Crocker Fenway scene. I mean, I find Martin Donovan extraordinarily chilling in that scene. Terrifying. Uh, and again, because I love that phrase. I'm going to totally steal that phrase. So we're going to delete this whole bit. So no, there will be no evidence <laughs> that you wrote that or that you vocalized that. I love that phrase, moral vacancy, because it implies not moral rot, because moral rot implies there was morality that went gangrenous and got lopped off like a bad limb. Moral vacancy implies there was never something there to begin with. It's just an emptiness. And I feel like the best the best noir villains, and I think you find them more neo-noir as, as the genre grows ever more cynical, is this idea of a villain who's totally aware of their villainry 
and they just don't care. It's just it makes their life more comfortable to live that way. And if that isn't the golden thing, I don't know what is. And if when you watch, and I said this uh, a number of episodes ago with the great Kim Morgan, when you sit down and you watch CNN today and you look at our president or you look at the Senate or you look at Facebook or Amazon, every morning when I'm watching the news, almost invariably for the last three or four four years, there will be something where I'll just say under my breath, it's the golden fang again. It's the goddamn golden fang screwing it up for the good guys. This seemingly uncaring force that has no – it's not that they're not aware of the damage being done. It's just why bother worrying about it? Right. It's not going to touch them. Right. It's going to touch all the people, like in this film, all the people that get strung out on fang heroin and have to have their teeth replaced or right. go to the Criscylodone to get – off the smack just to get back into the world to get depressed again and get on smack or join an anti-subversive group to save their family just let them deal with it i'm not going to deal with it i'm crocker finway right i've got my impeccable my my burgeoning 80s republican savings and loan scandal haircut and i'm drinking you know an aged whiskey here in this wonderful teakwood ballroom i don't have to worry about anything Mm -hmm. and i feel like every every day on the news i see that golden thing all over again yeah, no, a hundred percent. And I think the the you know, part of the greatness of inherent vice is the how interesting it is in terms of the characters who are, for lack of a better word, moral. I mean, not not in a black and white way, but just mm-hmm. you know the fact that that the you know in a weird way, like you know, Bigfoot. You know, he is in some ways like a moral guy. I mean, he is. you know, I mean, I mean like he's. Uh, you know, insane in some ways and inconsistent, <laughs> contradictory. Um, but what I find interesting about Inherent Vice is the sort of like uh, sort of uh, spiritual connection between people like Sportello and Bigfoot and the Reese Witherspoon character. Like these people who are like in totally different strata and mm-hmm. different, you know, but there's something that connects all of them. And in some ways it is maybe that 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 belief that things matter. And yeah. like, you know, uh, which I think is what maybe the that's maybe what characterizes the villains in the piece. Jimmy just gave me goosebumps. <laughs> he gave me goosebumps just now. But no, that's a hundred percent it. There are people, and and, and though a wayward though Bigfoot may be, and hypocritical that he is part of the organization that did kill his partner and is a wing of the Golden Thing, he's still doing everything he can that won't get him killed, to try to take parts of it down. Like yeah. he's giving Doc all the the information he needs to make moves on the street to use a, heart, a heat parlance, that he himself can't use. And even Penny, you know, she's the one that gives him the information on Bigfoot's partner that opens up the final act of the film for, 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 for Doc. It's all these people who believe whether they're a flatland chick like Penny, whether it's a fucking madman like Bigfoot, or whether it's a knockabout detective like Doc— they all believe that this matters and that there's a certain line that's just too far. Bigfoot, it's like you can't kill my partner. Whatever is wrong in the LAPD, you don't violate that. That There's that great line where, I'm going to get it wrong, where Doc, or Sorlige, muses for Doc that the one thing he could always respect about the LAPD was that bond between partners. And that's the one thing you can't violate for Bigfoot. And if you do that, you're just, that's it for him. Same with Doc. You know he's he's pretty permissive guy. Uh, you know he's he's pretty seems pretty cool with seeing you know multiple gals at once and not telling each of them about the other. Uh, but at the same time, little kid blues he can't abide that. Like 
that great line where he's like, you know, a little girl never being able to see her dad again. That doesn't sit that doesn't sit right with me. And there are these things that make them as wild as they are. And that's something that makes the film feel very, very real to me is as flawed and weird and not morally black and white as these characters are. There's just some things like Marlowe at the end of Long Goodbye. They're just lines you don't cross. And if you catch someone doing it, you have to you got to put a stop to it. Well, I always love movies. I'm a sucker for moments in movies when characters have a have a point where they sort of just can't abide something like this. Yeah. Like I, you know, like my favorite scene probably in all of Quentin Tarantino is in Django Unchained when Christoph Waltz just can't, can't shake his it. hand. He you just know, can't do and it. Just has to basically burn it all down, knowing that he's going to at yeah. least get himself killed, if not the woman who they've spent the entire right. movie trying to save yeah. and his best friend. Yeah. There, that that's I knew you were going for that again. That's that's another. One. I, as soon as you said that, I was like, oh god, he's gonna say it. He's gonna say it. My favorite move, my favorite scene in that film is that beat where he's just sitting there thinking of the guy getting torn apart by dogs, yeah. and just knowing he's like, I can't, I can't enter into a contract with this guy. It's it's too much. I want to save this woman. I'm responsible for Django's life. I want to give him a good one. I cannot be the guy that makes nice with Calvin Candy over white cake. Mm-hmm. I just can't fucking yeah. do it. And I will burn this entire goddamn deal to the ground just to spit in his face and I'm going to and then he just I'm going to kill him. I, ha- I he can't be allowed to live. Yeah. And that's what's going on to me in that in the scene I was saying earlier about the uh you know, the little kid blues. There's a moment where Doc realizes and what breaks my heart in that scene is Doc realizes that's the moment where he goes, "Oh, I'm not going to win. Like I'm not going to get her mm-hmm. even if I even if I had to rescue her somehow, which he doesn't really, even if I rescue her, totally extricate her from the thing, I'm not going to get her. Like, she's not going to love me. That great line that gets repeated, this don't mean we're back together. Mm-hmm. And it's that great moment where he realizes, I'm going to lose, but I can do this one thing so this one family doesn't have to lose. Mm-hmm. And... And I think that's that's what rings my bell, man. Absolutely, and I think that fan. speaks so much to the time we're in now. Because I always just think, you know, like I, I'm both addicted to the news and and totally depressed by it and totally defeated by it. You know, I just I constantly go through this thought of like it really the Golden Fang. I mean, I really think the Golden Fang has won. Like, I just don't think there's any. I don't think we're coming back. I think we've now sort of crossed. Oh, Jesus, took a turn. Irretrievable. You know, I think we've crossed irreversible lines. And so I do think it's like now, you know, and I I always struggle with, well, like, so how do you go on living in that kind of world? And I do think it's like, well, you just have to kind of in your life in you you have to be you have to try to leave the people you interact with. You have to try to leave their lives better than they were, not worse. And I think that's kind of what that speaks to in Inherent Vice. I mean, I think 100 percent. And that someone else on this show said something similar. Got to bring him up again. Drew McQueenie. We were talking about it, and he made the same connection between then and right now and essentially said that in times of utter, to use your phrase, moral vacancy and chaos, it is the the little decencies that matter and perhaps matter more than even the, the grander gestures, that it's the smaller, uh, granular decencies that can change one person's life. Sometimes that's mm-hmm. if that's all you can do, that's almost worth more than some giant heroic Avengers movie ending I mean, or something to that Yeah, to I mean, I don't effect. know about that. I could use some grand heroic <laughs> gestures. I'm just not capable of them as somebody who but, doesn't travel further than the New Beverly. Exa- so. Same here. So exactly. <laughs> For people like us, the yeah. most we can do is an act of kindness, however small. 
and hope that it makes a difference in some small way because the big the if if if, if the fang has one that's really all that's left to us yeah. are those those tinier moments boy this this got heavy this got heavy <laughs> i thought we were just going to talk about screwball romances on bench <laughs> on bench scenes but this got heavy real quick speaking of bench scenes before we dive into this scene proper we are meeting a character for the first time in this scene assistant da penny kemble and i know that she brought up certain other films in your mind that i feel like you and i are probably the only two people that have actually spoken about this film in maybe the last 20 years yeah. and that would be robert benton's 1998 neo-noir twilight don't don't anyone at home make a joke about that title we know there's another a different franchise we know but it's a really great film. But when you and I were talking about it last week, I really got the sense there's no one on earth doing doing what we're doing right now, which is talking about 1998's <laughs> Twilight, starring Paul it's Newman, a, Gene Hackman, Susan Sarandon, and a very, very young Reese Witherspoon. Yeah, it was the first thing I thought of, actually, when I saw Inherent Vice for the first time, and she came on, Reese Witherspoon came on screen, I, it immediately flashed me back to, to Twilight, that connection, you know, because Twilight was sort of an early... Uh, relatively early film for her. I mean, I guess because she was a child actress and stuff like Man in the Moon or whatever. She'd, she'd been in a bunch of stuff. But uh, uh, Twilight was one of her first quote-unquote adult movies. I mean, I think she plays like a 17-year-old or yeah, something. Yeah, it came out in 98. Um, so that would have been like right after Freeway. Okay. But before the big before Cruel, Cruel Intentions, Intentions and Election. Cultural explosion. Yeah, because so, yeah. Cruel Intentions and Election were 99, right? Yeah, but, 99 and 2000. So, but yeah. Twilight is a really... Uh, in my opinion, massively underrated movie and a great Southern California neo-noir, which is, I mean, it's very different from it, from Inherent Vice, but it's also, uh, it's got, you know, it's obviously connected to night moves through Gene Hackman, mm-hmm. um, and it has a lot in common with that. But the, some of the things, like like Twilight is basically this movie uh, about where, where Paul Newman is a kind of private investigator who's friends with this Hollywood couple, Gene Hackman and Susan Sarandon, who are both rich actors, and Reese Witherspoon is their daughter, and uh, Newman kind of gets involved in this mystery involving um, something that happened in their past, you know, decades ago. And I don't know. This is this is one where I don't want to be give spoilers too much because mm-hmm. I would like. I think most people have not seen the movie or don't remember it, and I'd like to encourage people to watch Twilight. It's actually streaming on Amazon Prime free right now as I speak. So if you have Amazon Prime, now after I just said what you know, how Amazon's ruining the world, uh, but don't, but don't let that stop you <laughs> from watching God, Twilight. But by God, they will get you Twilight. But, but yeah, you they will it. get you Twilight if you want it. So uh, you know, if we're all going to go down in flames, at least go down <laughs> in flames watching a great movie. Um, but Twilight is it's it's an interesting companion piece to Inherent Vice, and in it is another movie with one of these guys like Paul Newman who has this kind of like slightly strange but deep code of morality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has the moral vacancy. I mean, there's a very again, I don't want to give it away too much, but the whole like last act of the movie is a series of conversations that Paul Newman has with characters who he thought were like his friends who are basically learning how depraved. Yeah, the person sitting next to you always really was. Yeah, it's basically just a series of scenes of him learning that these people all are morally vacant and all mm-hmm. are willing again, it's like the Crocker Fenway thing, like these people basically to you know, to to live in the house they want to live in or to drive the car they want to drive and not give up these things. It's like they are again, it's that whole thing about not caring about the repercussions. I mean, there's a char- there's a character in this movie who sets in motion a chain of events where like multiple people are killed. Yeah. Um you know, and the movie's kind of about Paul Newman's 
outrage would be a strong word because it's this he's this very like uh, it's a very mellow performance. It's very you know it's 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 Paul Newman. Nobody's Fool era, Paul Newman, yep. you know. The directed sort of by the guy. Who directed by the guy. Robert Benton, who also did The Late Show. Who also did The Late Show, which, you know, I don't know if Paul Thomas Anderson was a fan of Twilight, but I'm 100% sure he was a fan of The Late Show yeah. without ever having talked to him about it or anything like that. Um, For those listening who haven't seen it, The Late Show is another film made about 20 years earlier by the same director that also features kind of an aging P.I. that gets sucked into a SoCal confusing mystery. Yeah. And like The Long Goodbye, involves a cat. Yeah, and is produced by yeah produced by Robert Altman and um, the uh, Twilight also has this like sort of another tangential relationship it has to Inherent Vice is it has this kind of weird both those movies have that that whole weird thing about the way the police department is like or or I guess it's like how the entertainment industry infiltrates all walks of yep. life including the police department so you know you've got like the posters yeah like in the Hollywood Depart- police department I've never been in the Hollywood even though I I live a block away from the Hollywood police station that's in Twilight. I've never been inside it, so I don't know if it's an actual, uh, if it's realistic or not. I'm guessing they probably is. But in Twilight, yeah, you walk down the halls of the police station and they're like one sheets for like Jane one and sheets. stuff like that. <laughs> All these cop movies. Yeah, it's, like, it's like walking into a video store. Yeah. Um, you know, and obviously you've got all the stuff in Inherent Vice with Bigfoot being, you know, a, an extra and an actor and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Benton, uh, you know, again, not to go too far afield here, but, like, you know, I, I, Robert Benton is a very, very unjustly forgotten figure, I think. I mean, they don't people don't talk about him that much anymore. And, you know, he was a pretty major filmmaker in his time. I mean, obviously, you know, I guess his biggest successes you know, commercially and awards-wise, where you know you did Kramer versus Kramer and Places yeah. in the Heart, but he was really—I feel like he was always kind of at heart. He was like a genre guy, genre guy. who kind of he you know kind of stumbled into a couple of these like prestige dramas. But his heart was always—you know—his first movie was a western, Bad Company. Then he did mm-hmm. Late Show. He did Still of the Night, which I think is kind of an underrated Hitchcock riff with Roy Scheider, Meryl Streep. Um, again, Twilight, you know, and then uh, he did. Uh, well, he wrote Ice Harvest. I guess he didn't direct it. Harold Ramis ended up directing that. But that was Ice Harvest is another cool movie. It's yeah. written by Benton and Richard Russo, the same guys who wrote uh, Twilight. Anyway, Twilight, <laughs> great L.A. neo-noir from 1998 that has a lot of these same things we're talking about. It's another movie about kind of passage of time and and regrets and definitely and things that you, that, that you will never have. And, you know, a lot of it is sort of Paul Newman. You know, there's like... It's another movie with this kind of like uh, class system, you know. It's it's also an interesting companion piece in a way to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in that way. Like I really love I love these Hollywood movies that are about the different classes in Hollywood because you know when I was a kid, um, and I could have saved myself a lot of grief if someone had informed me how wrong this was. When I was a kid, I had this theory that basically if you were working in movies, you were rich. You were in it. You know, if you, you came it. if you came to Hollywood, if you were a director, if, if that you know like. If it said directed by Jim Hempel, I'm living in a fucking, uh, you know, mansion in the hills, uh, you know, <laughs> partying with whoever, you know, with, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, Frank Stallone or somebody. And, <laughs> and so, so well, I, mean, I think you and I could probably do that now. I mean, <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, I, I you know, and, and I, but I think it's so interesting, like, again, once put them in Hollywood, the whole idea that, like, you've got, like, you know, the, the Sharon Tate and Polanski level, and then you've got the the Rick Dalton level that's kind of like, you know, making a good living, but, you know, not where he wants to be. And then you've got Cliff Booth, who's like completely connected to the industry, but living in a trailer and you know, Ice, eating macaroni yeah. and cheese every night. And Twilight kind of taps into that as well. And, you know, these kind of and, and what it's like to be in those worlds, but not 
you know, totally of them, of them to yeah. be the person. You know, Paul Newman and, and James Garner are kind of these – you know they they and James Garner has a great speech in it about like don't you ever get sick of yeah. of watching these people and what they have and you not having it and anyway a great movie and Benton's other neo noir that you mentioned the late show that one's much more like inherent vice in some ways in that it's it, I mean I actually find that movie to be almost incomprehensible like the actual <laughs> mystery of it uh, the late show I feel like I'm a sharp guy but that's one of the few films of this ilk where I still don't feel like I have my arms around it but it's also in keeping with the genre, you don't really need to have no. your arms around it for it to be. But it is one of those. I mean, I love Art Carney; he's great in it. But you do get to the end of that movie. I, I, even Night Moves, I, I, I get exactly what's going on going on in Night Moves, and that's another one that people are like, "What the fuck is that?" There's a plane, and there's like some, <laughs> there's some like some pieces of art or something, and like some sculptures. I get all that, but yeah, uh, the the Late Show that's a hard one to really kick, yeah. kick the tires on and understand what's happening. Well, in a lot of these movies, it doesn't really matter. Like even Night Moves, which I think the mystery does make perfect sense by the time you get to the end of it and everything. But like Night Moves, the actual plot mechanics are less important than the overall feeling again of moral vacancy, exactly. of malaise, of weariness. I mean, the best one of the great Alan Sharp exchanges in Night Moves is when uh, Gene Hackman's wife asks him. You know who's winning the football game, and he says something like, "You know, nobody one side's just losing slower, slower than, the, than other. the other." Yeah, and that's kind of the philosophy. It's one of those lines movie. should be too clever for its own good, but it is so goddamn good. There's a lot of those in Night Moves. The other, yeah. my other favorite is when the guy says about Melanie Griffith is like a teenager, and he says there ought to be a law, and Gene Hackman says there is. There is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Alan Sharp, the the greatest screenwriter ever. Hired Hand, Lozana's Ray, Night Moves. You cannot. I think I, I don't have said, an argument. I probably said you. earlier in the podcast that Walter Hill is the greatest screenwriter ever. So this is again <laughs> speaking to my point about like in well, the thing you quoted at the beginning where I said that you know Paul Thomas Anderson means more to me than any other living filmmaker or whatever. I, I think the reason I was bristling at that a little bit is because I mean he does mean a lot to me and I do love him. But the person who means the most to me can change on an almost monthly basis depending sure, on what I'm sure. watching and what's going on in my own life and you know all that kind of thing. So I get it now. We just got done talking about Twilight, starring Reese Witherspoon. We should probably, at this point... Yeah, we're only four hours in. <laughs> four hours deep. Four hours deep into this thing. We are now at Judgment at Nuremberg length com- uh, 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 into this show. We should probably actually jump on the scene at hand, which also features Miss Reese Witherspoon. So we're going to watch this scene, and we're going to actually come back and talk about something Inherent Vice specific. Doc and Penny Kimball meeting for the first time in the film. As much as he'd like to stay and chat, he had a lunch date to keep with part-time squeeze deputy DA Penny Kimball. It was only because someone else had canceled that she was able to pencil him in, and Doc didn't want to fuck up her act, considering they were meeting in public. Hi. Ms. Wolfman's Charlotte case? Apparently one of your girlfriends is a principal. I just heard that she skipped. Let me put it to you like this. How close were you to Shasta Bay Hepworth? I've been asking myself that very question. It was all over years ago. Months, years? I don't know. If you hadn't months. come along, babe, who knows how bad it might have got. True, you were a fucking mess when I met you. How about now? Old times aside, have you had any contact with her in the last, say, week or so? Well, funny you should ask. She called me up a couple days ago before Mickey Wolfman disappeared. Told me a story about how his wife and her boyfriend were plotting to hustle Mickey into the booby hatch and grab all his money. 
So I sure hope that you guys or the cops or whoever are looking into that. Your years of experience as a PI, would you call that a reliable lead? I'm no worse. Oh, I can dig. You're all just going to ignore that? Some hippie chick with boyfriend trouble, brains all mushed up with dope sex and rock and roll? Never seen you so emotional, Doc. The lights are out, usually. Never seen you during the day, Penny. You didn't tell Lieutenant Bjornsson any of this when he pulled you into the crime scene. Okay, that's because I promised you I'd come talk to you first, right? See if anybody at the DA shop could help out with this. Now, I tried to call you a day and night, no you reply. You tried to call me a day and uh, night? Really? Yeah, look, I forgot. I don't know. Look, all I know is the next thing, Shasta's missing, Wolfman's gone, and uh, Glenn Charlock's dead. Bjornsson seems to think you're as good a suspect as any. <laughs> seems to? Wait a minute, you, you been talking to Bigfoot about me? Doc, please. Besides, maybe you did it. Has that crossed your mind? Maybe you just what? forgot. Did you what? Kill Glenn Sherlock. Kill him? Yeah. What? Sold the house. How would I forget something like that? Grass? And who knows what else? I'm only a light smoker. How many joints have you had today? I'll have to check the logbook. Can't remember? I don't see how my smoking has any link to the Wolfman-Sharlock-Shasta case. No? And how come Miss Hepworth dismantled your relationship? She had other fish to fry. Did you say you're still in love with that? No. Take off your glasses. No. I'm not, wait, Hectic what is this? Hectic week ahead for me, so unless things heat up dramatically, I hope you understand. Log me back to work. It's too late to turn back. Okay. We saw the scene. Something else that you got out of PTA in your Filmmaker Mag interview was this following quote. A nice two-shot with two actors performing great dialogue. That's a staple of the movies of the 30s that I love the most. I don't fetishize 70s movies the way some people do. I love them, but my models are those 30s films, and I'm always trying to emulate that. And sometimes you can't. Sometimes you try to get things in one shot and you realize you're forcing the staging and you have to own up to the fact that, that it's just not working. You always have to keep an eye on it and make sure that your visual ideas aren't affectations and that you're not just adhering to some kind of dogma. But when you can make that kind of thing work naturally, it's the best. And that's really illuminating to me because the entirety of this scene feels like Penny is a character out of a 1930s film colliding with Doc, who is very much a 70s character. Penny's got this very uh, rat-a-tat-tat, screwball comedy energy. She's just, like, machine-gunning yeah. dialogue at Doc. Like, she's just walked off of, um, like, something Howard Hoxie. Right. Like, bringing up Baby or um, His Girl Friday, even though it's, it's technically 1940, but whatever. Right. Uh, uh, you get my point. Whereas Doc is just this kind of kind of hazily confounded and trying to dodge all of these questions as best he can like he stumbled out of an Altman Stoner picture and you even pointed out uh, you, you pointed something out similar to this uh, to him I think you, you didn't mention this scene specifically but you did note that a lot of the the, the conversations in this film are reminiscent of Fonda and Stanwyck in The Lady Eve mm-hmm. which that's, all, that's 1941 but still we, <laughs> the, the point remains yeah uh, I, this is a fascinating I don't think the scene. style of those Hollywood movies changed that much between 1932 <laughs> yeah. and yeah. 1957. Um, I'm just because some, someone on Twitter is going to be like, yeah. well, well re- a- actually, <laughs> um, 
because they have Wikipedia in front of them. Yeah, um, I don't think between between twentieth century and *Stars Born*, I don't. The, basically, the style of like almost all Hollywood movies is the same. So, but yeah, I think that this is interesting because it does feel like. I think everyone expects him to be a '70s guy, but I think he's actually much, as he said. I think his, you know, he always talks about how TCM is on in his house 24/7, and that he's way into the just the comfort of seeing the older films from the '30s and '40s. And this scene to me does feel very much like a collision of noir and neo noir. Not so much in terms of the plot, and there's not Venetian blind shadows crisscrossing the screen. It's that uh, it's just this energy, this her very 1930s hoxy energy and his very Altman-esque energy colliding on the, the screen, and it feels like the two genres are kind of talking to each other on this bench. Anyway, yeah. that's my pretentious I, take. I, I agree. And I mean, I was really surprised in a way when I interviewed him, and he said that thing about the 70s and the 30s movies and stuff, because, yeah, I always just kind of thought of him, again, because of Boogie Nights and you know Magnolia, I always just mm-hmm. thought, well, he's clearly such a, an Altman guy. And, yeah. And, um, uh, yeah, I was, I, was, I was really surprised by that. But that scene is, it is, it's, I mean, I remember the first time I saw that scene and I kind of had that thought, like you were talking earlier about the, um, the other scene, you know, the scene at the table with like the blank walls. Like the first time I saw this movie and I saw the scene between the two of them, I I was thinking to myself, well, and cause I had a weird experience with this movie the first time I saw it and I loved it, but I saw it knowing I was going to be interviewing him and mm-hmm. knowing it was going to be my only chance to see the movie before I interviewed oh, him. Like I, so like in a way I didn't. I feel like my my most my first pure experience with inherent vice was actually the second time I saw yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, because I feel like the first time I saw it was under weird circumstances, and that you know I got um, it was sort of at the beginning of this period I had where I had this pretty good run at Filmmaker Magazine doing these interviews with directors uh, for a few years, and I had I think the only one I had I had only done a one or two before this. Like I think I had done maybe Wes Craven. Mm-hmm. Uh, talking about I don't know I don't even know why I did like one or two and I wasn't even a, like any kind of real full-time thing and I get this email from the editor of Filmmaker Magazine saying hey this opportunity came up you want to interview Paul Thomas Anderson and so of course I'm yeah. like yes yeah. um, but this was before Inherent Vice came out and so I had to see a screening of the movie before I interviewed him so I saw like a screening on the Warner Brothers lot in a kind of tiny screening mm, room one of those little like, yeah. closet screening yeah, rooms yeah like a little have. closet screening room with like maybe three other people from yeah. like you know, fucking Teen Vogue or something. I don't know. You know, like, <laughs> because they're hot like, on the inherent. Well, Vice you know beat. what's you want to know what's crazy about <clears throat> inherent vice about when I interviewed him. I mean, is the I interviewed him at a junket, but I had like forty five minutes with it. It wasn't the usual junket thing. I usually hate junkets. Like I, I actually, it's one of the reasons I stopped being a journalist. <laughs> um, Doing was, those run and was, gun five minutes. I, I just feel like minutes. they're pointless. Yeah. Like you're never going to get anything good out of people. Nobody likes it. They don't like it. You don't like it. The only people who like it are the publicist because it's easy for them to cram a lot of, you know, get a lot of pieces out of it. So anyway, um, so I don't like doing these junkets, but I was willing to do one to meet PT. But I ended up having all this time with him because at the junket, weirdly enough, he was not a draw. Like the draw was the actors. And it wasn't even the actors you would think. It was like some of these actors like what's her name from Pretty Little Liars who plays Crocker Fenway's daughter. You know, like there were a gazillion people there to interview her. Like again, from like Teen Vogue or Mm -hmm. whatever and things like that. So it was a very strange junket because it was like I felt like me and PT had this very leisurely conversation. (laughs) We're not being interrupted. Like nobody cared. It was really weird. Um so anyway, but I saw this, so I saw a screening of it in this room with just like two or three other people, and I still really loved it, but the combination of the fact that it was kind of an antiseptic screening room mm-hmm. 
and the fact that I knew I was going to be interviewing him. And, and again, this was my only shot to see it. So I had to be thinking about what I'm going to talk to him about as yeah. I'm watching it. So I could never really get lost in it. And so one of the things I was thinking about was when that scene between uh, Penny and, and Doc comes on, I thought, like, why is he shooting this this way? Like, this is such an <laughs> odd choice to mm-hmm. have essentially just the two of them on a bench. It is, like he says, it's a two-shot. The camera is moving in almost imperceptibly. Like, as you're watching it, you can't really see the camera move. It's so yeah. slow. You know it's moved because by the end of the shot, it's closer on him than it was when it started. It's like watching it's, a cloud. You don't actually ever yeah, see the clouds move. It's yeah, just, but you it's look up so and slow. And, I mean, I think it works. You know, it works great, but it's kind of like... I think a lot of directors um, would have either shot it with more conventional, you know, you would have had coverage so that you least get, because you don't really see Joaquin Phoenix's face that much nope. in it. Um, you know, it's really all about Penny, which is kind of interesting. Um, you know, so it's, I, and, and on the one hand, I was like, I was kind of wondering, like, why is he doing it this way? But on the other hand, it completely works because if you, do, he's right. If you do have great actors and the writing's there, it's like, you don't need to get in the way of it. Um you know, that said, I enjoy a scene like in Carlito's Way between uh, Al Pacino and where Pen- going. Penelope M. Miller, where they're like, you know, just talk, having a conversation and the camera is like constantly moving mm-hmm. and constantly doing weird things and stuff like that. And Well, oh, did, mm-hmm. I, I cut you off. Like I, I don't jerk. know what I was going to. I don't know. Well, you go ahead. Well, I, I like to lord over the show like it's my little fiefdom. Yeah, so I have, to, I have to interrupt even if I have nothing to it say is. just to feel powerful. Yeah, yeah, you, know? you should. It's that Crocker Fenway yeah. thing. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but you are right uh, in your suspicions, or maybe more right than, than you're aware. Um, this scene, it was, this is not how this shot was originally constructed. Okay. This was originally. Uh, it was. It's. It's written in the book that they meet at a diner, like a lunch, a lunchtime diner, uh, right around the corner from the glass house, and that's how it was scripted, and that's how it was shot. Uh, in the first half, of the pre first half of the day, they spent all day doing the over the shoulders for close up. We're going to film all this from Doc's point of view, or, or over Doc's shoulder at Penny. She's going to run all her lines. We're going to do all the takes. We're going to reset it up. We're going to do Doc's close-up. And it was structured, so it was basically going to be the Hope Harlingen scene all over again, but at a diner. And PTA was talking about this in an interview, and he was talking about how, uh, you know, they were having to fight the sun because the sun was changing because this was a big open diner and big window, so you're constantly fighting where this, trying to control the lighting. And he was talking about... Uh, kind of happy failures and happy accidents and he talks about this scene as being one of the his favorite shots in the movie because he talks about as, as you've said loving ha- having two actors just sitting in a natural place and he said you just start moving the camera in and the scene begins emotionally with you thinking you're at one place and much like the camera moving it ends somewhere completely different than you expected which is a great happy accident and he how this scene came to be built like that is they spent four or five six hours pre-lunch doing it the one way and over lunch he just realized this is a piece of shit it's just it's just people talking again this is he's kind of i think had a bit of a panic he's like i thought this was going to be a beach movie and now it's just people in rooms talking and so he walks out of the diner where they were shooting and he just sees a park bench across the street and after lunch he's like i I just laid down some dolly track and asked uh, them to sit on a bench together, and we just did it in a one-er, just like that. 
And I know that uh, you kind of, I, I think you almost feel like it feels like an anti-shot in right. a way or something <laughs> like that. But uh, I, I mean, I, I mean, again, I think it works. I don't mean that in a bad way. It's yeah. just, it's just an interesting, it's an unusual choice. I mean, I do think it works. Um, and maybe it worked. And and there's a, you know, and there's another scene in the movie, uh, and there may be even more that I'm not remembering. Um, but there's another scene with him and Owen Wilson that's also like sort of a one at the Topanga House, yeah. where they're just sitting around. The, because again, you know, I I have no problem with exposition, but there's a lot of exposition in this movie. And how many of those over the shoulder shots yeah. can you do? Yeah. Before it does start to go, my God, like yeah. we do need to break this up. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do love when he does that. And he, he, as you said, it has that slow, kind of almost insidious creep in uh, as two people are kind of downloading each other on all this information. And something that I think is kind of interesting that you mentioned is you're right. You never see Doc's face all that well. And I know this as someone who's trying to get a screenshot of this scene for the website <laughs> right. for this episode's entry. You really can never get his face in there. And what I think what – what actually makes that work for me in this scene is – the way Penny is written, this is a scene in which she is she's bracing Doc. She's interrogating Doc. And she's using this LAPD, or at least that's how it comes off to me, this LAPD interrogation tactic of she's constantly shifting the conversation's focus um, so that the person being interrogated can never get a sense of what questions are going to be asked. So you almost inadvertently blurt out the truth because you, you just you can't keep track. You can't follow what's going on. And I love, though, that she's not using it to be a good assistant DA. She's interrogating him not as law enforcement, but as someone who has feelings for Doc. Right. Like, look at all her questions. Let me put it to you like this. How close were you with Shasta Faye Hepworth? And how about now, old times aside, have you had any contact with her in the last, say, week or so? You tried to call me, really. Then how, then how come Miss Hepworth dismantled your relationship? Would you say you're still in love with her? There's something... There's a sweetness to that about the, the, in her weird kind of cold. Well, I can't remember how he calls it, like uh, a straight world chick looking for hippie thrills. Way, she's between every little jabbing question about the case or Bigfoot or Doc's drug use. She's just slipping in these absolute body blows, uh, inquiring about the nature of his feelings for Shasta, which will have bearing on his na- his feelings for for Penny, and the way her eyes bore into him. And because you can only see her face, so you're just seeing her reactions to all of his bullshit, and uh, and uh, and it, you get such a sense of their relationship. And I don't know, it makes me laugh every time we were seeing. And just now, when mm-hmm. you and I were watching, I couldn't help but giggle. Oh, really? You, you called yeah. me day and night. Oh, oh, really? <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. And and but I, I, for a film that uses so many metaphors to investigate its primary themes. I love that it takes an LAPD interrogation and makes it about a jealous lover. But that, I, I just, yeah. It's just one of those little one of those little pockets of this movie that are so great. And I think that's why this movie is endlessly fascinating to me is how much is buried, buried in the mix, you mm-hmm. could say, uh, to, to, but really speaks to what I think the movie is really about, which is just people and the weirdness of being in love. Yeah. No, that's a great way of putting it. And and I love, I love the relationship between the two of them. I love the other scene. That comes up between the two of them later. I mean, it is because it, it is again getting back to what I was saying about like the pe- certain people in the movie having this kind of like spiritual connection. Like there's some level on which these two people connect, even though they are completely opposites. And it is sort yeah. of like a '30s screwball comedy. I mean, it almost is like bringing up Baby in reverse or something. <laughs> it's like you know she's almost like the square Cary Grant figure. Yeah. He's got like a wild 
center inside and he's mm-hmm. you know he's the Catherine Hepburn or something <laughs> like that um which i mean honestly to uh, to be honest i hadn't really thought about that scene in those terms before uh we started talking about it. i never really thought about it as like a screwball scene but that's it's completely what it is there's something about her energy like yeah. So that's what's so great about having so many guest spots in this movie, which is like a Mount Rushmore yeah. of amazing actor cameos, is that they all bring their own tonal wavelength. I'm yeah. starting to sound like a hippie. But they start bringing <laughs> their own tonal wavelength and energy to the film, whether it's the kind of zonked out, laid back nature of Benicio del Toro's performance, mm-hmm. or, you know, it's, it's a little bit more than a cameo, but Josh Brolin's just insane. Uh, weirdly heartbroken James Caan mixed uh, with like a 50s fl- uh, flat foot yeah. uh, persona and then you have kind of the salt of the earth of Jenna Mal- Malone mm-hmm. as Hope Harlingen or my god Martin Short just coming in like a purple tornado of cocaine mm-hmm. uh, I love how these act- different actors they bring their energy and PTA is someone who as we've said loves actors so much kind of lets their energy just take over yeah just take over the scene entirely yeah and also what's so great about hers is that there is such a there's such an easy chemistry between witherspoon and phoenix be in an emotional shorthand because they've been in a film together right. about being a mismatched couple right. in love and i not that they're not great actors and not that they couldn't have just acted like a couple in this movie and i would have believed it but there's something about having, I think, work together that oh. adds to this contentious, a hundred, prickly energy. A hundred percent. I mean, this it's funny. I interviewed Paul Dooley once, and I was asking him about... I, uh, ne- I did not, I will say this, I did not expect to get a Paul Dooley <laughs> reference on, on Increment Vice today, so thank you for that. <laughs> well, you know, it's ten, again, you know, PT always brings me back around to Altman, and so you're going to get to Paul Dooley one way or another. <laughs> but I, I remember interviewing Paul Dooley at a screening of Breaking Away afterwards, and I asked him a question about something about, like, the chemistry between him and uh, the actress who plays his wife in the movie is Barbara Berry, or however, I, I can't remember who, who, what her name is, but anyway... I asked him this question about the chemistry and um, how they built that or whatever, and he just looked at me and he goes, it's called acting, son. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, and I guess maybe that's true. If you're Paul Dooley, you can just you know do that. But I also, I know, like, uh, I mean, just not not trying to, like, be self-serving and uh, be, like, plugging plugging my own shit here. But, no, plug uh, away. But I made, you know, this, I made this movie with Leah Thompson and John Shea, and they didn't really... They didn't really know each other that well, but they had done a miniseries together 10 years earlier mm-hmm. where they were husband and wife. Yeah. And then in my thing, they were like ex-husband and wife. Ooh. And in a weird way, the energy they brought to it was like the energy of having they, – they re- it, was, it, was, it was this weirdly like not autobiographical, but it was like they were sort of doing in real life what their characters were doing mm-hmm. in the movie, which was like these people who had been together hadn't seen each other for a while, and now they're kind of like getting reacquainted again. And yeah. I think it's undeniable – that there was like a layer there that I didn't bring to it, you know, and that wasn't intentional on their part. That just had to do with that past relationship from that other movie that was kind of yeah. there. So I 100% think that that's you know, no matter. Of course, Joaquin Phoenix and Reese Witherspoon are great actors, and they're always mm-hmm. going to be great. But I definitely think there's like this interesting, you know, undercurrent that's this kind of like informed by Walk the Line, and um, you know, and I lo- I love Reese Witherspoon in this movie, I and mean, I actually kind of. I don't want to say I wish she was in it more because I think the movie is perfect 
as it is, and I'm not one of these people. You know, I got into this big argument with somebody. I almost like threw a table over at a party the other day, <laughs> arguing about once upon a time in, Ho- time in Hollywood with somebody. Uh, who oh boy, was, is my blood going to get hot over this? Who was getting into this whole thing about? Well, first of all, I mean, I think they were just kind of trying to goad me by saying that Brandy was the most developed female character in the movie. But then we got into this whole thing. But that led to this whole thing about the um, the Manson girls and how, mm-hmm. like, you know, the fact that, well, in real, you know, in real life, they were in that position because they had been abused and blah, blah, blah. And, like, Quentin's not showing you it. It's like, you know, is the movie supposed to be 16 fucking hours long? I mean, uh, you know, it's like I, I don't like this. It's like to me, it's like I don't like this strain of reacting to movies as well the filmmaker didn't do the things i wanted him to do so therefore that's a flaw like you know so so i would never say that like it's a flaw in inherent vice that reese witherspoon isn't in it more that said it's a testament to her character and that relationship that i actually i could watch like a whole romantic comedy about doc and penny like like a howard hawks as i Mm -hmm. i kind of wish there was some alternate universe where pt made a uh doc and penny mystery exactly like the thin man (laughs) with doc and penny i would kill to see that movie because i love the two of them together and i really love reese witherspoon in this movie and it made me wish that she did more movies like this like i wish reese witherspoon uh, i'm sure you know like she needs my career advice yeah (laughs) um reese are you listening you know reese i i know you need a lot of help i know you're not you know you're having trouble right now uh i really would love to see reese witherspoon do more of these kind of auteur movies Mm -hmm. um where she like doing these kind of character roles like i wish reese witherspoon would be in you know tarantino movies and things like that i mean like i love i don't know i really loved her uh I felt like she, I felt like this movie gave her something interesting that was a little different from anything I had ever seen her do, and yeah. it's, and it's not just that terrifying hairdo she has in that scene, but that uh, is a beehive, all right. Yeah, um, but there's some. You no, know, I think you're right. She's, and maybe some of the some of these movies. I I don't know the backstory on them. I don't know if some of the the films that I'm thinking of she did just because that she had to do them at the time, like say something like Freeway, but there, she's an extraordinarily gifted comic actress. Yeah who really seems to thrive on fearless, almost scary material. Like, she's the best thing about Freeway. Mm-hmm. Or you look at something, I Jesus, 20 years, Jesus, we're also old now, 20 years later, Election is, she is just yeah. as terrifying and biting and hilarious in that film today, watching it today. It's, Another it's, it's, movie very relevant to 2020. Oh God, yeah. the, but that, that, that performance still stands yeah. out as just... incredible. It's, it's, it's painful almost to watch because it's it's so scary. Like she, it's like a knife coming right at you for for two hours straight. And it is it's odd to me that, I mean, I, again, the last thing I think she needs is us <laughs> two guys awesome. on our podcast giving her uh, career advice. I think yeah. she's doing pretty okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think she's I think the she's keeping the lights on. But um, <laughs> that said, I do think that she has a very unique series a very unique set of cinematic strengths that she does not always lean into right because she doesn't have to yeah, yeah. but she is so good at it when yeah. she does do it and I, I get what you mean when you get little tastes of it in this film yeah both in this scene where as, as, as we've said she she does come off like this howard hawks character just machine gunning dialogue and uh uh interrogations towards doc but even in um it's so great then to see her so loose and freewheeling in her follow-up scene when yeah. she's uh, busting Doc's balls on the phone and then mm-hmm. going, I could bring you a pizza. Yeah. And yeah. then she comes over and she's high and yeah. 
uh, wearing Doc's sh- nothing but Doc's shirt on the couch and laughing about his Nixon jokes. Yeah. And just so zonked out and goofball. And, like, you totally get in this moment why Doc would fall for Absolutely. this gal and, you know, violate his no straight world yeah. uh, rules to, to see her. And then, and there's also, there's a really sweet, it's, and I only know this because I'm insane and I've looked for everything. There was like a Instagram only 10 second teaser, character teaser uh, for Penny uh, for Inherent Vice. And it's a brief little scene of her warmly smiling and putting her hand on Doc's and saying, go into this room over here. And when you do, the file's going to be waiting for you. About later mm. in the film when he's trying to get um, uh, Bigfoot's jacket. Yeah. And it's little bits like that where you're like, oh, God, I could watch this whole movie yeah. of, uh, uh, like I said, you know, Nick, or not Nick and Nora, a, uh, a Doc and Penny mystery yeah. of them and their, their strange collision of yeah. personalities working together to, to, to bring down bad guys and, solve, and crack cases. Yeah, that scene they have where she comes over to his place is, I think, one of the great scenes in any movie at sort of conveying what it's like to be in a relationship with someone where you're still at the point where you're at the point where you're both really taken with each other but before there are like big consequences yeah. like in other words it's like the two of them at this point i don't think they're necessarily like thinking this is forever or whatever mm-hmm. you know it's still it's kind of ca- it's a, it's that perfect sweet spot where yeah. it's like still kind of casualty but casual but they really really like each yeah. other um and it just it's such a yeah, it's a and what's kind of and kind of adorable is I think almost sometimes Doc is more enamored with her in that there's that great line yeah. when uh, she's like, "Well, I've never seen you this worked up, Doc." And he's like, "Well, it's because the lights are usually off. I've never, mm. I never get to see you in the daytime." Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's something about that where it's almost like he's almost pushing for a little bit more, but she's got to yeah. keep it cool. Yeah, you know, it's almost like he's her side guy. Yeah, and like, hey, 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 ease yeah. off, Doc. Like, and I, but yeah, I totally and there's just the sweetness of them, and it's. That which is funny that you can fall in love with these two people being together, even though there's the weird thing as a viewer where I think you're also pushing. Like, God, I hope he ends up with Shasta. I really hope he ends up. I hope they, see. He gets the I girl. have never in all the times I've seen the movie, and I haven't seen it as many times as you. I've probably seen it. I think I saw it in the theater maybe four or five, and then I've probably seen it four or five more, more times on. That's a healthy number. On video. That's you know. a healthy human being's it's health, number. It's a healthy. Yeah. As I mean, to my, I, you know. Um, so I've seen it a bunch of times. I've never had the desire for him and Shasta to end up together in all the time. It's never occurred. Oh, come on. It's believe, never in, even a, believe in something, Jim. I know. I, look, you know me. You've, already, you've heard me say we're all doomed. <laughs> <laughs> we're all, <laughs> no, you're not talking to a, a great idealist here. Uh, yeah, no, I've never – it's never occurred to me. Like I, I've wanted – kind of wished him and Penny could maybe make something work. But I don't know. I've never had the desire to see him and Shasta end up together. I don't know. I always thought Shasta was kind of a nitwit. She's been through some shit, man. <laughs> she's had a hard life. I keep saying she's had the kind of the Linda Darnell and um, mm-hmm. Fallen Angel life. You mm-hmm. know, she's had hard times, man. You can't hold that against her. No, I'm not holding it against her. I just don't think she's up to Doc's level. Oh, I think Penny Penny is actually. You know, I, I, although I don't know if Doc's completely up to Penny's level, so I don't know. That's but. that's also very true. But yeah. you know, I don't think I don't think you're entirely wrong there when you say well, yeah, I don't know if she's up to Doc's level. And I actually, not to go too far into someone else's scene, the big scene, the the sex scene, yeah. Which, I'm is, so glad you didn't have me on here to talk about that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's going to be an interesting one. Um, <laughs> I can't. I, I don't want to have to deactivate all my social media accounts. The, well, I'm. I am very excited about the the brave guest uh, <laughs> who has agreed to come on to that episode with me. I think everyone's going to be really happy with her. But uh, there is uh, 
one of the interpretations I think that you could have of that scene it, when Shasta is in quotes seducing Doc by basically telling him how she was a kept woman of Mickey Wolfman and how he would even farm her out to his friends and uh, you, maybe she liked that maybe she didn't it's not really made clear but as Doc said, that's not exactly the... He's like, boy, guys sure love to hear stuff like this. But part of me always viewed that as Shasta knowing what you, Jim, seem to know, that the, she's not good for Doc. Mm-hmm. She might yeah. love Doc. I think yeah. I think she I think, I think right. she loves Doc, and Doc definitely loves her. Mm-hmm. Um, and even PTA has said, you know, it's about being in love with the person that's not right for you. Mm-hmm. That said, I, I, and I think that maybe Shasta is more aware of that yeah. than Doc is. And I almost uh, feel like this is her way of saying, I'm not shaming her for having done those things. If that's, right. if that's what gets her off, that's great. But I also feel like she is saying to Doc, is this really what you want mm-hmm. this person? Because yeah, she's like, she starts it off with like, what kind of girl do you want, Doc? And speaking of yeah. the Manson girl, she's like, do you want right. one of uh, Charlie's girls, you know? that you can just tell to do whatever you want and they do it the way Shasta did for Wolfman. It's like, is that, is that really is that really what would make you happy is to have a Manson gal? And I think she knows the answer is deep down, Doc does not want that, mm-hmm. but he still wants mm-hmm. Shasta. And I almost feel like that scene is her warning him mm-hmm. and saying, like she even says at the end, it's me we're back together. Yeah. But I think that's her way of saying, look at me, really look at me, stop idealizing me mm-hmm. and, and realize that you know, I'm fucked up, mm-hmm. and you don't want this level of fucked up. That's my take on it. No, I agree. I agree completely. And speaking of Manson mean, girls, I got to say really quickly, one of the most insane things about 2019 and 2020 is that we actually have to tell people that you don't have to defend Susan fucking Atkins. <laughs> but yeah, just just anyone out there, <laughs> Susan fucking Atkins does not require anyone's defense. <laughs> she really, really doesn't. Just to bring it back to that once upon um, a time. Yeah. Really, really, no one needs to be defending her. Kasabian, maybe. Susan Atkins, I I think history speaks for her well enough. Um, you threw me off of whatever I was going to, whatever my <laughs> we were talking about. Was. We were talking about Shasta the, uh, basically yeah, yeah, yeah. saying, well, uh, thing, I'm not another, right for it's you. It's another one of the pleasures of inherent vice, I think, is is the kind of all these different relationships where it's it, this whole thing of, um, you know, like you were saying, like 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 the, these sort of relationships that the, the relationships that exist, like uh, between Jenna Malone and Owen Wilson's character and and uh, Bigfoot and his wife, um, <laughs> to the you know, things like that. Um, and then there are all these sort of like what ifs, and you know, is Shasta really right for Doc? Probably not. Whatever. And then I always wonder, you know, do you think? Uh, and I'm drawing a blank on the character's name now, but the the woman who narrates the movie, sort of leash. Uh, do you think she's in love with Doc? Well, in the book, she's not. Okay. Uh, in the book, well, in the book, she's a real, she's a confirmed real person. That's left that's left up in the air in the film as to whether or not sort of leash exists outside of Doc's head. Mm-hmm. Um, given the way that you know she'll be in a scene and mm-hmm. she's gone. Uh, in the book, she was Doc's former receptionist and is just now his surfer hippie chick pal who's dating a Vietnam vet biker dude Mm -hmm. and just kind of gives him advice here and there on where to score and what to avoid and change his hair, change his life, stuff like that. I don't think 
in the film, at least as I view it, and that's what's so great about this is you it's such a prism you can view it yeah. in a number of ways. I don't know that a sword of leash has a thing for Doc. I feel like I, I feel like even in the film, if if she exists and is not just his intuition, yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like she's just kind of his Jiminy Cricket. Like I she's, guess, yeah. I always just kind of looked at it. There's just some of the way she looks at him and things. I, I always kind of wondered is like she the friend who kind of <laughs> has a thing for him or whatever. Um, and but bringing up the thing of whether or not she exists, uh, you know, this uh, I've got to ask where you, where you stand on this. So so in terms of like PT theories so uh is uh is emily watson's character in punch drunk love is she an alien an alien yeah you never heard this theory there's a theory that she's an actual actual extraterrestrial yes there's a theory that she's an extraterrestrial um and i can't remember it has something to do with all the like footage on the tv sets of like space shuttles and moon landings and stuff and then there's like a few other things i can't remember them all right now i thought maybe you'd come across this as a as a pt enthusiast look it up on the internet i am a pta so much of my bandwidth is taken up by inherent vice at gotcha. this point, man. But wow, I had that. Had, I I had never I, I, heard that. Yeah, I mean, Punch Drunk Love was for me when it came out, and and I'm not as much. Again, I've I've I go back and forth. Like now, I'm really that Boogie Nights. I mean, I, lo- I love them all, but again, like Boogie Nights and Magnolia, I've kind of come back around. Like I went through a period where I was like, oh, Boogie Nights Magnolia, those aren't those uh, like. You know, those are what people who don't understand PT. Those are the commercial ones. Yeah, those are the commercial ones. Those are the commercial films. You know, I went through a phase where it's like, yeah, no, you know, the, the master is the best one, you know, whatever. And then, um, and now I'm kind of back around to loving Boogie Nights Magnolia the most. But like Punch Drunk Love, when it came out, hit such a sweet spot for me because it was like the height of my PT obsession. Um, you know, I'd seen, I don't even know how many times I saw Boogie Nights and Magnolia on the big screen. I mean, Boogie Nights and Magnolia, both of my sort of, they would keep jumping around. Um, it makes me so sad to say this even because none of these theaters exist anymore. But, like, they jumped around all the big Westwood theaters. Yeah. Like, you know, when Westwood used to have the National and the Festival and the uh, the Plaza. They had all these great one-screen houses in Westwood. Yeah. Now they're all gone except for the Bruin and the Village. But... Um, but it was funny because both Boogie Nights and Magnolia kind of jumped around them like it would – for whatever reason, for a long time, those movies. It felt like they play, played in theaters for a long time. Maybe they didn't. Maybe I just was going to see them like five times a week or something because I <laughs> had no life. But anyway, I was the height of my PT obsession when Punch Drunk Love came out. And I wouldn't say I was the height of my Adam Sandler obsession because it continues to expand. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I was certainly very obsessed with Adam Sandler. Sure. Uh, and so to me – at that moment, when Paul Thomas Anderson made a movie with Adam Sandler, it was the equivalent of when I was a kid and Scorsese made a movie with Jerry Lewis. It was like <laughs> the like King of Comedy when that came out. It was like, wait a second, you know, because I was already I was a Scorsese nut as a kid, um, but Jerry Lewis was like my absolute favorite, you know, favorite. And so I was like, okay, wait a second. Scorsese made a movie about a guy obsessed with Jerry Lewis. He's making my life story. Um, and it was kind of like that when PT made the thing with Adam Sandler. And so I was, I was really into Punch Drunk Love, and so I was reading all these like wacko theories and stuff. But now I, I actually have kind of fallen away. I haven't watched Punch Drunk Love in a long time. I should revisit it because it, it kind of, it. Um, the last time I watched it, it, it was one that I didn't connect with emotionally as much as I mm. used to for some reason. Um, maybe because I'm not a guy anymore who goes into bathrooms and destroys them at restaurants <laughs> like I used to be. Uh, maybe oh. I've become a little too healthy to relate to Punch Drunk Oh, Love. so you, you actually do get a grow out of that period? I'm still there. <laughs> All right. Well, I enjoy it. I, 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 I last watched it when the Criterion disc dropped. I guess that was – you know what? I don't know if I've – I watched the extras. I don't know. The last time I watched it, it was actually uh, on the big screen at the Egyptian – uh, when I moderated a Q and A with 
uh, PTA. We did they shut Phantom Thread and then Punch Drunk Love, and they That's were kind right. of interesting companion pieces because they're both. You know, it was funny. Like I was thinking going in, like these two movies have nothing in common, and then watching them, realizing well, they're both about guys with like uh, extremely. Uh, intrusive sisters, you know. So, like, <laughs> so they weren't completely. But, uh, and, uh, yeah, but that's that brings but, us. Oh, go ahead. No, you well, got somewhere you're going. I was going to tell going. a funny Hang story on. about Paul Thomas Anderson and doing that. So I have met Paul Thomas Anderson twice, mm-hmm. and both times were in. Like the first time was when I interviewed him for Filmmaker Magazine. Mm-hmm. The second time was when I did this Q and A with him uh, at the Egyptian. And so, needless to say, the moment when I met him doing the Filmmaker Magazine thing was for me a formative. You know, one of the moments of my life you yeah. know i mean there there will be you know in my life when i get to the end of my life there will be you know falling in love with the woman i'm with you know certain you know deaths of people i love and you know in these these seminal moments one of them will have been when i met paul thomas anderson so i, I met him and it was like this whole big deal to me like i even brought him a gift you know i knew he was an alex cox fan so i brought him this book that alex cox yeah, wrote about the yeah. making of his movies and stuff gave him this gift you know he you seemed like whatever she didn't bring I, oh you did bring I, a I gift. that's a right gift. that's right i, I, I forgot i was, I was I, gonna make a wry little joke yeah, but I was like, no, shit, i believe the in the second guest in a row that I, brought a gift yes i believe the uh I, i'm not like a spiritual person at all but i do uh uh, I do like the Deepak Chopra thing that always always bring a gift when you're a guest somewhere. So I gave you a, a, a radio dot com water. So. You did, so I, I can't complain. But uh, anyway, so I brought my gift, all this stuff. It was this clear this big moment for me. You know, uh, I can tell you, it did not have the same impact on Paul Thomas Anderson because then <laughs> the second time I met him at the Egyptian to do this Q and A, so like. Uh, you know, he gets there while Phantom Thread is playing, and uh, Grant, the manager of the Egyptian uh, yeah. program, he comes like taps me, taps me on the shoulder to come out to the lobby to talk with Paul. And like, I come out thinking it's going to be this great reunion oh, no. uh, between two like minds, you know. And he had no idea, he had no memory of this encounter of us meeting whatsoever. And no, you know, and I'm, I'm sitting there, I'm like, yeah, oh. I'm, like, I'm like, yeah, we've, we've met before. I interviewed you for Filmmaker Magazine. He's like, oh, yeah, no, sorry, I don't remember. And, you know, and then I'm like, yeah, you know, I gave you that Alex Cox book, you know, and it's like, oh, oh wow. no. And it was just like, it was like that scene in broadcast news where Albert Brooks is talking to the girl and, 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 and her father's like, yeah, remember he went on that that two-week raft river rafting oh trip with us. God. It was really funny. So um, so clearly I did not have the same effect on Paul Thomas Anderson that he had on me. But we did have a very lovely time yeah. uh, at the Q&A, um, except for the guy who stood up in the middle of the Q&A when I went out to audience questions and um, pulled out a three-page, said asked if he could... Uh, read something short, oh, Christ. Uh, and it turned out to be a three-page manifesto he had written. But he claimed he had come all the way from Mexico just for this Q and A. So we felt like we kind of had to indulge him. Jim never indulged those guys. This is why. Well, here's the thing. I've now been moderating enough of these Q and As. Uh, to be completely honest with you, uh, one of the reasons I don't do as many of them at the Cinematheque anymore is they like to do audience questions. Oh, and I don't. And it's not me being a. It's not me being a snob about myself as a moderator. I, I don't like it as an audience member when there's I audience can, questions. I can tell you. Boy, we are so far afield right now from hair advice. <laughs> it doesn't matter. We're having a good time having a talk. This is interesting shit. Uh, as someone who is in a lot of these Q&As as an audience member, I can tell you no one wants it to go to the audience. Yeah. Everyone in that audience dies inside when, the, when, when someone on the stage goes, well, we want to throw it out to the audience a few questions. We have time yeah. for that. No one in the audience except for the totally oblivious human beings who have no sense of self-awareness whatsoever and have more of a comment than a question. Right. Only they want to throw it to the audience. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I uh, I do not. If it's ever up to whenever it's up to me, I don't throw it out to the audience. And again, I, I do that for the audience. Yes. Because when I'm in the audience, I don't like it. I don't like it. You know, if it's a good moderator, I'd much rather just hear 
them go back and forth. And um, yeah, but the Cinematheque, they they really think that I and maybe, you know, I, my theory with theaters like that is that maybe they think they sell more tickets if mm-hmm. it's going to be open because some people are coming to ask to a ask. question and maybe that's true. But I really have kind of I've kind of pulled back from doing stuff there because I just can't take I, I don't need more awkward moments in my life. I really don't <laughs> like I I would like to avoid them at all costs. You know, I don't need more moments like the one when I was interviewing Toby Maguire and a girl raised her hand and started babbling about how she was an extra in Spider-Man 3 and did Toby remember her? Oh, and no. I mean, m- much like me babbling to Paul Thomas Anderson about, do you, do you remember <laughs> me? <laughs> well, if it makes you feel any better, he said that one of the more embarrassing moments of his career was uh, he cast, he, it, here we are, bringing it back to Inherent Vice. See, look how, look, look how professional we are again about casting uh, Jeannie Berlin as... Uh, Aunt Reet, Doc's uh, real estate and client aunt in, uh, in Inherent Vice, and cast Jeannie Berlin, which, for those of you who don't know, Jeannie Berlin is the daughter of the absolutely brilliant writer-director, comedian Elaine May, and he went to a party with Jeannie Berlin, and Elaine May was there, and Jeannie's like, I gotta introduce you, She's gotta, this is gonna be great, meeting of the minds between these two incredible epoch-defining direct writer-directors and PTA was like so starstruck and like oh I love your your oh man Mickey and Nikki and, and Ishtar oh, or oh, God, Mickey and Nikki excuse me yeah Mickey and Nikki Jesus, I've, I've written about this goddamn right. movie <laughs> Mikey and Nikki uh and uh in Ishtar such formative films for me and Jeannie's like mom this is this is Paul Thomas Anderson and she looked at him for a long time, and she's like, well, who is that? <laughs> and he said he just died inside. Yeah. Like yeah. I did just now when I realized I said Mickey and uh, Nikki yeah. instead of Mikey and Nikki. <laughs> like, a, like a fucking Disney cartoon. Uh, but uh, he just died inside. Mm-hmm. Because by that point, everyone knows who Paul Thomas Anderson is. But uh, Elaine May just, like had no idea who the hell this dude was, this yeah. valley boy was that was talking to her that knew his daughter. Mm-hmm. So it happens to the best of us. Yeah, well, happens good. to the that's best of us. Know. All right, that's good to know. But we brought it back to inherent vice. <laughs> and the last thing I'm going to say before I set all of us free today is breaking this this movie down into little increments. I think really for for a film that I've seen God knows how many times, it really starts to show me things I never would have noticed if I sat down and watched it in one chunk. And you might have nothing to say about this. I'm just throwing this out there because I think it's kind of interesting. You begin to see certain structural affinities. And we talked about in the last episode with uh, my guest, we were talking, uh, Courtney, we were talking about how uh, the scene with Hope Harlingen, uh, and then there's following that, there's the scene with Sloan Wolfman. And these two scenes kind of speak to each other like a double feature in that they're this kind of, they're like unique funhouse mirrors of one another. In the first, you have this kind of salt of the earth gal next door who is told that her husband is dead, but she refused to, refuses to accept that, despite uh, resistance from the banks and the LAPD. And she's doing everything she can to find him, all while maintaining this kind of quiet, hard-fought dignity. That's followed immediately by a scene that features a garishly, ghoulishly rich woman uh, who is told her husband is missing, but she parades around as if he's already dead, and has all the help in the world from the banks and the LAPD without a shred of decency or empathy. And it's just these two kind of inversions of the same scene right next to each other, speaking to each other, contrasting one another, which I never would have noticed. If, maybe I'm an idiot. Maybe that's the first thing you know. No, no, I agree. But the one thing about this scene that I think is— I never thought about it until just now. 
it never until I broke it down. And that's one of the things I think this this film is actually wildly modular in that it actually does stand up to that level of like, let's just do this a scene at a time. Uh, hopefully it does. I mean, that's I'm doing a goddamn show about it. Uh, similarly, today's scene. And well, when you want to do the scene by scene on Robert Benton's Twilight, let me know. Can, uh, <laughs> It'd be shorter. Than this. That's a 90-minute that's a, that's a <laughs> yes. film. This thing's two and a half hours. I thought you were going to say Judgment at Nuremberg. Well, well, like, well, we should definitely do that. <laughs> yeah, another laugh, right? Um, and with your, the attitude you've brought today, I don't know, Jim. You, you got, got kind of dark at times. I don't know oh, if yeah, I want to do... you don't want me talking about Judgment I don't know if, Nuremberg. I don't know if I want to do a yeah, Nazi wait, courtroom wait, wait, drama podcast <laughs> um, Similarly, today's scene and the one that follow it kind yeah. of have that same relationship in that both Doc is being braced and interrogated mm-hmm. by those who want to know what he's thinking about. Uh, Penny is asking him questions about the case while really trying to know what's going on in his heart. And then in the following scene, the FBI is going to be asking about his caseload and his clients while really trying to find out what he knows about Mickey Wolfman. And it's just those kind of structural parallels that, again, we can call it hyperbole. And some of it is obviously due to Thomas Pinchon, but there's not all of these pairings are in the book the way they are in the film. It just blows my mind sometimes that someone like PTA, who seems like the kind of a and I mean this as a compliment. I don't mean this as an insult. He can be like a casual valley dude yeah. when you talk to him. And it's weird to realize that there's this whole other, other level of creativity and brilliance yeah. that's going on. There's a great line about the author Don DeLillo by his longtime editor who said, uh, the way I explain DeLillo to myself is that he's a totally normal, regular, average guy that likes baseball and hamburgers whose brain just so happens to be connected to an absolute staggering literary genius. And I don't think those two halves of himself communicate. Mm-hmm. That's what I think of when I think of PTA, because I see scenes like this and these kind of structural affinities where it's just like never in a million years would that have occurred to me to group these together so that they talk to each other like that. And mm-hmm. I just think that's a fascinating bit of art, uh, cinematic architecture or writing architecture. That's all I got. I said to throw yeah. that out there. Well, I, you know, I, uh, I've, talked about PTA with Joaquin Phoenix before and he said that about I mean he he loves PT and one of the things he love about loves about him is he said he's just the most unassuming modest guy he's ever worked with for someone who is such a massive artist and yeah. uh, it is and and I would say that having done the two interviews with him I mean he's just it's just like it's like us hanging out here I mean it's not there's no uh you know, I'm trying to think who somebody is of – well, you know, I interviewed – I did a Q&A with – I did a bunch of Q&As actually with Paul Schrader. And actually, I actually had a – I mean, this is a whole other story. This is for when you do the scene-by-scene uh, scene taxi driver podcast. <laughs> but I, I spent a weekend with Paul Schrader once um, driving him around L.A. He came out – he came to L.A. for a, uh, like – retrospective of his stuff at the Cinematheque mm-hmm. and I was going to moderate the Q&As with him and then I overheard like the Cinematheque them talking about how like Paul came out here he didn't have a car and he was asking the Cinematheque if they could supply somebody to like drive him around to some meetings and stuff while he was here <laughs> and I said I'll fucking do that I'll drive the guy you know the guy who wrote like the greatest driving movies ever made like yeah, Taxi Driver yeah. and Bringing Out the Dead and you know American Gigolo I want to drive the guy <laughs> who wrote and directed American Gigolo around Westwood you know and so I ended up actually spending like a weekend like driving Paul Schrader to like meetings at like Netflix and HBO and stuff and listening him growls about them when he like got back in the car and the thing about Paul Schrader is like the amount with, of money I would have paid yeah no it was you, great to, to it was amazing a tape recorder. it was amazing and it was but it was a fascinating thing too in terms of the way 
because he would alternate between treating me basic, like telling me great stories and being very open and then sort of just treating me like his Uber driver, like depending on whatever mood he was in. But um, <laughs> but he, the thing about Paul Schrader versus Paul Thomas Anderson, like Paul Schrader knows he's Paul Schrader. Yeah. When you are talking about, he fucking knows what he is. He knows he's a legend and behaves accordingly. Um, although he's also very self-deprecating. I mean, we had a big mm-hmm. argument about Hardcore, which I think is a better movie than he does. But... Um, he didn't like her. Oh, Jesus. oh he it's has a, a lot movie. of beefs with her. I think a lot of it has to do with his uh, the personal interactions with George C. Scott, who was mm-hmm. drunk most of the movie and all that kind sure. of stuff. He told a great story about meeting with George C. Scott uh, about the part at a country club where he walked in with, and George C. Scott was sitting at the bar and at one point just took his pants off and handed them to the bartender who calmly folded them up and put them under the bar like this was a normal thing was George C. Scott at this bar would get drunk and too hot and would take his pants off and they would store them for him and anyway George C. Scott got drunk with him at this bar and then um, said hey will you drive me home and Trader said okay and then they got in the car and George C. Scott couldn't remember where his house was um, and then and Trader started asking him to describe it and George C. Scott like was describing it and Paul Schrader was like oh yeah wait a second I know where that is Bob, that Bobby De Niro lives you know and he used to have a house near there or yeah. whatever and, like found it and anyway then they got to the house and George C. Scott pulled out a gun and he was a whole, whole lots of crazy <laughs> stuff so I think that has more to do maybe with why Paul doesn't like hardcore but anyway long way of saying you know you're in the presence of when you're with Schrader he's kind of putting on like a Paul Schrader show a little bit mm-hmm. um, and PT just does not. Paul PT is like you say, hanging around with the Valley Dude. Just happens yeah. to really love movies, which in some ways does make it all the more impressive. That you know, let's face it. I mean, the guy. Uh, I, I feel like I'm, I'm already kind of want to. I want to like end this by um, taking back something I said only an hour and fifteen minutes ago. Um, <laughs> well, you know, because I realized I was being an asshole with like the whole thing about how oh I wish he'd let loose again and do a Magnolia Boogie Nights kind of, you know being like one of these assholes who says the Manson girls in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood have motivation like you know <laughs> he he I should be fucking happy with what he's yeah. giving us like he's you know I mean he is absolutely to me you know of guys of that generation and I mean I guess it's not exactly the same generation he's a couple years younger than me and I think Tarantino's about eight years older than me but I still think of all of us as being sort of part of the same generation like guys of my generation to me it's like. There's Tarantino and PT and there's kind of everybody else. Like yep. those two guys are the fucking titans. Mm-hmm. And I am astonished, like you say, when I watch these movies over and over again. And when you do take them, when you do watch them in little pieces and things. I mean, I've been doing it with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because I've been doing a ton of Q and A's. Done like movie. every goddamn Q and A. Yeah, and I'm doing one movie. tomorrow night. I'm yeah. going to do another one with Q, with Quentin and his AD tomorrow night. <laughs> and with that movie, what's interesting is so every time I do one of those Q and A's, I always sit through the movie again. And I watch that movie differently every time, depending on who I know I'm going to be interviewing afterwards. Mm-hmm. So, like, if it's going to be the production designer, I'm watching it all from the, pr- the perspective of production design. If it's the costume designer, same thing with costumes. You know, if it's the casting, you know, I did one with the casting director. So I was thinking in those terms. And so when you go into the movie every time, knowing you're going to be talking to a different person, you look at it differently and you yeah. see it, just all these different things that you didn't see before. And, uh, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson's movies... You know, all of them uh, hold up to that kind of scrutiny. And all of them, like, I may go back and forth on which ones I like best, you know. Sure. I mean, again, I, I'm The Master, the night I saw The Master, I thought it was the greatest fucking movie I'd ever seen in my life. Yeah. I, would, I, I really did. I um, And I saw it, I mean, just, you know, I, I really enjoy making you jealous. So 
Um, oh, good. So I'm going to. It hasn't happened. Uh, in I, I like really, three I really minutes. like watching you seethe with resentment. <laughs> um, so I'm going to tell this story. I was uh, a few nights before I was going to go see The Shining at the Arrow. A friend of mine who works at the Arrow was like, "Hey, you're going to go see The Shining on Friday night, mm-hmm. right?" And I said, "Yeah," because I Shining is one of those movies I try to see it almost every time it's projected. Sure. I love The Shining. Uh, it's a running joke in my. In my 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 household my 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 wife is a screenwriter so we're both kind of, we're you know she's she's like a real writer i'm a sometimes writer but we joke a lot about like the jack torrance is a character that has a lot of resonance in mm-hmm. our house yep. basically um probably i'm more like jack torrance than she is but but there, there's a lot of resonance in that in that movie so i see it every time i can so he says you you're going to go see it right and i said yeah and he's like good and he's like you want to make sure you go come see it i was like oh, okay new print what you know he's like just come see it so I get to the theater Friday night, and I see somebody else who works there. And I'm already getting angry, and I don't know where this yeah. is going. And I see somebody I'm else who angry. works there, and he's like, uh, he's like, man, I'm so glad you're here because this guy knows like what a PT fan I am, and he's like, you know, you are going to be in for a surprise. Oh God, now I know. And, what you're and doing. I said, and yeah. I said, I said, well, I what's going this. on? What's going yeah, on? And he's yeah. like, yeah, just he's like, just whatever you do, just stay in your seat after The Shining. And I'm like, okay. So. Uh, Grant gets up, introduces The Shining, and he says, we're going to have a surprise for you guys. Don't leave after The Shining. <laughs> we all stay there. And <sighs> as soon as The Shining's over, uh, you know, uh, Grant gets up and says, okay, we're going to watch. And this was maybe, this was like a couple months before The Master was released. Yeah, it I had, know. It I had know. not shown anywhere. I know. And Grant says, you guys are going to be the first people to see <sighs> a 70-millimeter print of The Master. And I, uh, again, my, my wife says she has never seen me so happy, ever. <laughs> like, she's never seen that look of unadulterated oh. joy come over me. I'm so, oh. And so, uh, yeah. sure enough, we all, without knowing anything, I hadn't seen a frame of it, you know, I hadn't seen a trailer, like, no, knew virtually nothing about it, and got to watch The Master. And P.T. and Maya Rudolph were, like, sitting behind us. Um, and seeing that movie... That was like the opposite of my my inherent vice thing, where it was like this antiseptic screening room and kind of passionless. This was like seventy millimeter print with a crowd of people who were all going insane because yeah. we knew we were getting this experience that no one else was getting. <sighs> um, and anyway, well, I'm real glad you shared that. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for coming on the show. I'm glad I've um, had you today. It's... Point being, I I may like that one at that point was my favorite. I wouldn't call it my favorite now, but you know it, it changes because. You know, I mean, the movies don't change. We change mm-hmm. when we watch them. And something a movie like Inherent Vice, um, you know, you change. You're a different person, even watching a scene every week. You know, you're a different person watching that next scene than sure. you were when you watched the other scene yeah. the week before to for, prepare for the the podcast. And I feel like um, it it is the kind of movie his movies can stand up to that kind of scrutiny. I mean, the guy is you know he's a, a genius and. Uh, I live in I've always lived in ever since I saw Boogie Nights um, opening weekend uh, I've always been lived in both awe and just horrible envy of him because because <laughs> I do think that people I think like I always think about the thing in Bull Durham where um, you know the really I, I feel like my relationship to PT and by relationship I mean the one inside my head he's sort of like my <laughs> you know my imaginary friend yeah um, my relationship with PT, it's sort of like the, the relationship between like Kevin Costner and Tim Robbins and Bull Durham, where like Kevin Costner has this like, <laughs> oh my god, this like rage, you know, where he's like, you know, he's like, you know, your arm, like the gods reached down and gave you a thunderbolt for an arm, and he's yeah. like, so I mean, it's not exactly the same because PT deserves it and loves movies and everything. He's not an adult like the Tim Robbins character in Bull Durham, but this whole idea of like, I do think that some people are just 
born with it. Yeah. I mean, I think like Paul Thomas Sand, like I am not. Like, I've made a couple movies. I hope to make more. I am not a born filmmaker. Mm -hmm. Like, Paul Thomas Anderson. He was made to do this. He is a, he was born with it. And I'm so jealous of it. Because I always feel like the movie about filmmaking that I relate to the most is Ed Wood. Because, and and, and the first time I saw it, I didn't think it was funny at all. Like, I I was so depressed for weeks after I saw (laughs) Ed Wood. Because it really, I really had this existential crisis. Because I related so much to that guy. And I thought, and I thought, oh my God, like, is this me like am i this guy who has all the love in the world for movies but doesn't necessarily have the talent to do it the way he loves it done by other people and um you know so i do have this jealousy of guys like paul thomas anderson and quentin and even to a certain extent christopher nolan although i mean that one's the most ridiculous of all of them because like i could never i mean in a million years i could never like my (laughs) intellect is so he is such a you know as such a pea brain compared to him in terms of conceptualizing those things. It's like being jealous, you know. I again, it's like being jealous of Michael Jordan or something. You know, it's ridiculous. But I do. Uh, but I'm in awe of PT. I just think he's a born the same way Marty's a born director. And there's certain people that I just sit there and I am in awe and love that they exist and they keep me. You know, as much as I think the world is ending and we probably. Uh, I don't think we're any of us who are alive right now. Uh, I don't think we're going to die peacefully. I think we're going to. It's going to be Mad Max Fury Road. Jesus Christ! Jim. I think we're, I think, we're I, going so well. Just, I think just we're now. heading. We're heading for Mad Max Fury Road without a doubt in my brain. We're all going to be fighting each other for water and and you know stuff like that. Um, but while we're here, Paul Thomas Anderson movies give me a reason to live. <laughs> oh my! How do I close the show after? That? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, that's my final well, word. That's uh, a final Come on, word. Paul Thomas Anderson movies give us reason to live. That's a what better way uh, to be. Yeah. To um, well, um, I guess before uh, the bombs drop and the sky turns to slate ash and um, we're finding like the cannibal sellers from the road, uh, <laughs> we, we will have that Blu-ray of Inherent Vice. You're right. Jesus. Let's just hope there's like a Criterion edition or something that'll come. That would be nice. I mean, I mean, before World War III, it would yeah. be nice to have the the Paul Thomas Anderson oeuvre on yeah. the the Criterion collection. Well, um, yeah, I guess that would be a happy note. <laughs> and now I am going to surprise you and close things out and connect things back. That uh, much like George C. Scott at the end of an episode, I get hot and I whip off my pants. That's how every episode ends. So brace yourself. Um, but I do want to say before that happens. Thank you so much for coming on today. No, it's my pleasure. This has been an absolute blast. Even as we stared into the abyss at the end together, even as uh, as I said, you made the the bile rise up and uh, erode the back of my teeth with sickening, stomach twisting, brain bursting jealousy. I'm gonna get through it. Um, I'm gonna have a little counseling session afterwards, like I promised, and uh, I'm gonna get. I'm gonna. I'm gonna be okay. I'm gonna be okay, even though you get to hang out with Quentin tomorrow night. Um, that said, again. Thank you so much. This has been an absolute blast. People like you are why I do this, is to, so I can just talk to you about these these scenes, and not just these scenes, but as we spent the last two hours doing the themes and the other films that connect to this, and just talking about the stuff that I dig with people who I think are really cool and smart and just as excited about these kind of ideas and these kind of films as I am. I am. So this has been an absolute joy for me. 
even as you promised my own doom. Well, it's been great for me too. And just to, I know you keep trying to end this, and I keep. I'm going not trying. No, I'm not trying to end but it. But the uh, just to, as Paul Thomas Anderson would say, Jim, wax, I got so another. As, I got another as, couple as, hours of this in me. Be as, careful. As, as Paul Thomas Anderson would say, I'll, I'll wax your car a little bit here and say that. I mean, what I love about this podcast is I'm I'm I love finding out that movies I love that I thought were underappreciated have a whole cult of people mm-hmm. who love them as much or more than I do. Yeah. I mean, and this has happened, and I feel like that's the great thing about this. Like, okay, you know, the Heat podcast was fantastic, um, but I think that's a movie we all knew pretty much, you know, acknowledged classic mm-hmm. in a sense. Like, we all know Heat is great. Yeah, We all know everybody thinks Heat is great. Anyone who doesn't think Heat is great is not someone I want to know. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, I'm not one of those people who generally has – litmus tests for my friends about movies they like or don't like it's all very subjective but if you don't like heat you, there's, you, there's, you, there, there, there's, there's a few so I, it is still I, Herculean that Blake did every goddamn minute of that it movie. is it is Herculean and that movie was very deserving of it I mean that, again very few movies can hold up to that kind of scrutiny um, but what's cool about this one is I do feel like you know initially when I heard you were doing this I was both very excited and then also thought, gee, like this poor guy, like who's he going to get to come and talk about this? And, yeah, I and, really thought I was going to have like six people yeah, show up, and, and, that'd be it. and who's going to be the audience for this? And it turns out that actually there's it's it's there's a whole lot of us out there who love this movie, and it's great. I feel like you've allowed all of the inherent vice lovers to come out of the closet, so to speak. <laughs> you know, and similar experience. And this again, I, I always feel like I'm on the verge of completely. Um, discrediting myself and and losing all credibility. Um, But I had this funny experience a few years ago. I wrote a uh, piece, like a, I guess it would have been 40th anniversary piece, in defense of John Borman's Exorcist II, The Heretic. That's a great movie. Agreed. I think it's a great movie. And it was amazing how many people, it was funny, like people uh, like Joe Dante and like people were kind of coming out like and like, like saying to me, how much they love that piece and how much they love Exorcist 2. And it's like a movie that I... Scorsese says it's 10 times more terrifying than the original. I mean, I actually... I, I Look, I love the original too, but I, I mean, there's a whole other topic. But I, I actually... I, I, I hope we're talking about Exorcist I, I hope William Friedkin <laughs> isn't listening to this because I know, you know, I, I love him. He's, you know, Billy, you're, you're one of my heroes. You've done many of my favorite films. I even said at the beginning of this podcast, my goal when I was a kid was to be you. I, I do slightly prefer Exorcist 2 to The Exorcist. However, I saw Exorcist 2 first, and I always wonder, like, you know, it's like, it's so, so, so to me as a kid, I actually took a while to warm up to the original Exorcist because I saw The Exorcist, like the way that people who love The Exorcist then saw Exorcist 2 and were like, what the hell is this? I saw Exorcist 2 first and then watched The Exorcist and was like, what's this fucking boring movie? Kind with, of a tame with, movie by yeah. comparison. Like, what's this boring movie with, like, a kid in a room for two hours? Like, where's the locust? It's the Inherent Vice version of the movie, ex- just people in rooms. Yeah, exactly. Um, but anyway, but it was kind of fun when that, that Exorcist 2 piece came out because, like, most of the time, most of my pieces just kind of go out and they sink into a void. I think, you know, you're the only person who reads them. Um, <laughs> but, but every once in a while I write one that kind of takes off. And that Exorcist 2 one, weird, which I assumed – was going to be one of the ones that would fall into the void. I was just doing it because I needed, you know, gas money that week. Um, (laughs) But it ended up kind of, you know, ended up turning out, oh, there's this big cult of people who really do love Exorcist 2. And uh, there's this big group of people who really passionately love Inherit Vice. And it's kind of weird because I feel like when the movie came out, there was this sort of very lukewarm reaction to it. And I'm so glad that you're, like, now I think because of this podcast and then the conversations it starts – 
I feel like you're we're churning the tide here where <laughs> we're the, fighting the, good fight. the conventional wisdom about inherent vice is, I think, changing in the way that the conventional wisdom changed about Eyes Wide Shut or mm-hmm. certain other movies or even, you know, like Fight Club. I think about these movies, you know, it's like it's hard to believe some of these movies like, you know, the Fight Club when it came out again was like very like not well liked critically yeah. and didn't make money really and it was seen as the thing it was decrying i mean even yeah. rest of soul uh you know god bless him um roger ebert i think wrote like what a piece of fascist art yeah. this is yeah not getting that no the whole point of this is that it's poking fun well at that's always that would the say biggest... his name is robert paulson not it's not chanting his yeah. name is robert paulson. i mean this is always the big problem as it leads me back as all things do to joel schumacher and saint almost fire and <laughs> as the great joel schumacher said uh, on the St. Louis Fire commentary, uh, you know, critics often – and look, I, I mean, I have a lot of respect for critics, especially Roger Ebert, um, who was probably as big of an influence on me as a filmmaker as any uh, filmmaker was. Like, I mean, the movie I made – one of the movies I made um, was – almost entirely influenced by me wanting to make a movie that Roger Ebert would review the way he reviewed My Dinner with Andre. Mm. So so I love critics. I love, However, I do think Schumacher is right that a lot of times critics mistake, as he puts it, content for intent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this whole idea that what you're presenting on screen, you're endorsing, is so childish to me. But it's amazing how often that argument and it, and nowadays. To this day, uh, oh, still, Scorsese, Irishman. Oh, it happens with him. Well, it's happened with him on virtually every, every yeah. movie he's made since Mean Streets. Um, Any and, of his non-religious epic. Well, hell, even uh, yeah. Last Temptation. Got yeah. It. And it's just to I'm just amazed that grownups still have this. uh this conversation that I like that this is a thing that people still say about movies. Um, it's why I every day swear to myself I'm going to like close my Twitter account and mm. never look at it. But you know, I can't bring myself to because then I'll like look on there and somebody will post you know a funny picture of a frog that looks like Seth Rogen or something, and uh, I have to keep keep looking. But um, but yeah, I just I'm amazed that whole thing that like yeah fight club these these movies that were the where they become criticized for being what they're commenting on and it's just whatever i don't know what my point is i've now derailed <laughs> us even further from you trying to resolve this I, whole I thing i feel like but, it's not an increment vice episode if the guest doesn't lose their train of thought yeah. least, that's, it's a common happenstance <laughs> it actually happens almost once per episode where the person will be like Oh, what was I? Yeah. What was, I feel like there's something about this movie. That well, I feel very Doc Sportello here, as, you know. Um, but, <laughs> but but I basically, but I do want to thank you for having me here because I, I am always happy. Basically, the point is, I love any chance to evangelize on behalf of this movie and and, and Paul Thomas Anderson. I mean, anytime I can preach the gospel, and I'm happy to have you. And you are Not welcome to come me. back. You are welcome to come back. I don't know what we'll talk about, <laughs> but you are welcome to come back. And I, and, and to to that, I will say that. Something that I did not expect when doing the show. Well, the first thing I didn't expect was more than six people showing up, and the names of the people that are showing up is just staggering to me. Uh, I didn't expect anyone to want to do it, but on top of that, what has been the most unexpected joy of this to me? I mean, I knew I was gonna have fun talking to because I'm, I'm I'm basically just asking people that I think are cool to come talk to me about this shit. But what I didn't expect the, sh- the show to become is, to me, it's the way that Inherent Vice is not really about the mystery and the way that Inherent Vice is really not about the long, sad history of Southern California, Los Angeles land use. It's really about you can't let go of things and how you can't, how it's hard to let go of what you love, even if it's gone, even if it's dead. How, even if it's dead, there are people who will say, no, it's not, my husband's not dead, it's not gone. And the way that Inherent Vice is 
not really about the detective stuff. It's about the heart stuff. Uh, I did not expect it, but this show really has evolved beyond just Vice to me to be about all of the themes that I love in my genre art. Uh, the the loser detective who just wants to do one good thing. If he can just, or not even a detective, just the loser character, if they can just commit one meaningful act to justify their entire existence, that'd be a good thing. That'd be a good day. That Shane Black type character, if I can just make this one bit of goodness happen, I'm okay with waking up tomorrow. That idea, the idea of, of film noir, films noir and neo-noir, um, ideas about redemption and masculinity and violence and American character, all of these things are packed tight into Inherent Vice. And so to talk about it on a scene-by-scene basis, I basically just get to talk to all of the really cool artists and writers and critics um, about those themes. It's I've, I've just somehow finagled my way into being able to shoot the shit with all of you about the themes that I like, and I sneak it in as, oh, we're going to talk about Inherent Vice. And that the show can be that and do that and be this kind of time capsule compendium of all of these people who I really respect talking about all of the things that I really like. It's both an extraordinarily selfish endeavor uh, for myself, but I also think it's just a really, really cool way of gathering all of us together to talk about these really cool ideas in, in genre, genre cinema and cinema in general. And that's, that's why I love it. And yeah, again, more than six people have showed up. And that's wild to me. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I'm sure that later tonight, as I lay in bed, I will regret many of the things I've said, but I will not regret coming on the show. <laughs> that is so nice. What a nice way to end. We're not going to stare in the abyss at the end. We're going to walk out hand-in-hand hand happy. I'll put my pants back on. This has been great. <laughs> Jim Hample, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for talking to me about this movie. It's been a blast. Do you want to tell everybody where they can find your work? Uh, yeah, they can go to jimhempelfilms.com. I usually try to post if I'm doing Q&As and stuff about my movies and if I my, my writings and ramblings are there. Or you can uh, follow me on Twitter at, at Jimmy Hempel. And again, if you live in Los Angeles, if you keep track of the screenings at the Arrow or the Egyptian or the New Bev or whatever guild you, you happen to belong to, and you see there's a Q&A and you see it's moderated by Jim, if, if my word means anything to you goddamn people, take my word for it. Go see that screening for, if nothing else, the Q&A that will follow will be enriching, it will be exciting, and it will change the way that you watch the movie or movies in question. It's, it's really, really, really a gift and a luxury that, that we have in Los Angeles that everyone who loves film should take part of if they, if they have the opportunity. I highly, highly recommend it. On that note, thank you again for coming on. Thank you, everybody, who's who've listened to this extraordinarily discursive and rambling episode. I hope you really like that Exorcist 2 content. And join us next time when I'll be Dino, a very special guest will be the other guy, and we'll tell Penny Davis Jr. what a lovely time we had. Whew! Check your calendars, gang, and mark the date. Today's the first day a hero stepped forward to finally out-talk our own rather garrulous host about inherent vice and chat him into submission. We should have known a cinematic like Jim would have it in him to suss out those endless interlinked connections upon connections upon connections, kind of like a wayward detective we all know and love out on Gordita Beach. 
And speaking of old Doc, will he survive a run-in with straight world, but almost certainly secretly crooked, feds next week? Will our Travis and his guest? We'll see what we can see next time on Increment Vice. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.